Hi everyone, Matt here. This episode was so large when recording, i.e. it's about five hours long, that we had to split up into two different parts. So this is part one, and so once you finish listening to it, remember to go download part two. Hope you enjoy! Welcome to episode 58 of Realm and Ruin, a Warhammer podcast. A podcast that is so Warhammer that if we were a Primaris tank, we would be a Realm Grav, Punisher, Battler, Destroyer, Ruiner, Smash McPulsar. <laughs> oh, God, it's happening all over again. It is. <laughs> They're coming for our predators. <laughs> <laughs> I'm your host Matt, and joining me as always, a guy that I hope hasn't been replaced by Necron, well at least without telling me. It's Cameron, <laughs> how you doing mate? I'm doing perfectly alright, thank you. Uh, I've yet to figure out the rigours of biotransference, but as soon as I can get out of this floppy meat sack, the better, so <laughs> I'll keep you updated. <laughs> oh, that sounds like a speed dating profile. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I see. The Necrontier had the right idea. I know they. I know oh, probably yeah. some of them regretted it, but you know, there's advantages to being oh, in metal yeah. form. Ah, <laughs> 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 oh, well, here we are, episode fifty-eight. This is a ruin episode. So, if you listened to us last episode, you would hopefully know what that means. If you don't, I'll quickly recap. <laughs> uh, basically, it means that on you know, basically a format change for us. We're doing two types of episode now. One is a realm episode where we cover basically hobby and news. And then the next episode uh, would be a ruin episode where we cover uh, a main law topic and a discussion topic. And so this is our first sort of proper official ruin episode. And uh, mm. so, yeah, that's basically how things are going to change. Um, and as always, you can check out you can how to support us, how you can join our lovely Discord and everything like that in the show notes as always. So the plan for today's episode is exciting. It's big. <laughs> we are deciding to cover all nine books lore-wise from Psychic Awakening. That's Oh boy. I know. <laughs> <laughs> That's a challenge, but uh, we thought it it makes sense. Obviously we know that yeah. obviously ninth edition is now officially out. It's the 26th of july today so it's all officially mm. out now so it'd be nice to sort of do a recap of psychic awakening because obviously you know some people have got the odd book here and there uh, but obviously not all of them and it'd be nice to sort of do a nice concise here you go this is basically what happened obviously before mm. we now go into ninth edition so that is the plan for the main law topic and then at the end like i said we will have a discussion topic uh, basically we're going to get the hammer out and go on the anvil mm. apotheosis and do yeah. a couple of our own custom characters, which will be, mm. well, should be really fun. So that is the plan <laughs> for this episode. Uh, lengthwise, I don't know how long this is going to go on for, so be prepared that when this comes <laughs> to editing, it may be a two-parter, uh, as in we, yeah. as in they'll both come out at the same time, but you'd have to download two parts because I don't know. It could be gone for quite a while because there's we'll quite see. a few books. We'll see. We'll, we'll yeah. see. We're, we'll we're see. not going to go into before. minute detail. 
We're no. not going every single word. No, no, no. No, Just, exactly. But a bit of detail, the interesting stuff. Yeah, exactly. That's that's the plan. <laughs> so we'll go in order that they came out and yeah, we'll just basically give you a, you know, an overview, pick out the nice points, give you the gist of what happened, and then you can be all happy people knowing mm. what went down in Psychic Awakening. Yeah. So, uh, Cameron, let's get on with it. Let us do mm. the main lore topic. Right, okay. Psychic Awakening time. Let's kick it off. Let's start with Phoenix Rising. Let's see what those Eldari have been up to. So uh, let's start with the, the Dathodean. So basically the Dathodean is what the Eldari call the Great Rift. Uh, you know, and you'll find that in most of these books. They all, you know, especially the Xenos factions, they have a habit of naming them differently, which sort of makes sense as well. So like I said, known as the Great Rift, the Eldari, um, they're basically more split up than ever before as a as a race you know communication has been sort of sent out across the void you know no contact from a couple of the craft worlds uh, suspected that their souls may have gone to uh, uniad more about that later um this has basically hit them hard you know considering the size of their race hopefully one day you know they may return to be prominent again who knows um this hasn't helped the eldari unite obviously uh, quite the opposite in fact with the sort of the distance between the craft worlds making it even more difficult to so it'll be buddies with each other. The uh, the webways have become damaged and the paths taken by the Harlequins to basically bring the Eldari sub-factions together isn't really working. So obviously the Great Rift has served as a silent reminder of how far the Eldari have fallen. You know, as we know from, you know, the previous history with them, they're, you know, a psychically attuned race. You know, they feel guilty and despair for all their faults because obviously they brought Slaanesh into existence. Uh, not a good thing. <laughs> uh, therefore, the I, you know, and therefore the Eye of Terror came into existence as well, and then obviously, ultimately, the Great Rift. So they've got a lot to answer for <laughs> in some mm, ways. Yeah, um, it's their fault. <laughs> yeah, yes, we're we're not blaming them, but we are. It's their fault. Um, <laughs> a lot of this resentment has you know has been targeted towards the Unari and their leader Yvrain, and and by association, the Craftworld Bieltan. Um, this has basically created a divide amongst them. Uh, you know, got those supporting your vein and those who see her with, you know, quite a bit of contempt, really, especially, you know, there's like a coincident, uh, coincidental attack of one of the craft worlds from a Celestia horde. Again, we'll cover that in a bit. Um, however, this is sort of come from, you know, a possible new beginning. You know, they've raised the the avatar from the skeleton of Beltan. Uh, some of Dari believe mm. that this is, as proof of Yinyad and, you know, the possible Doom of Sinesh eventually. Um, the Adari, and especially the Craftworlders, have accepted that the Great Rift has brought a wave of psychic energy with it. Obviously, that's one of the main things about it. Um, and, you know, obviously a lot of them are very in tune with that as well. Um, obviously, with the help of the path to channel their focus mm. and skill on a single thing, uh, like one example is the, the Witch Path. So where their skills of prophecies have now become full visions. Um, you know, luckily, sort of demon incursions were have been kept at bay while this has been going on uh, with their mm. runes of warding um, and such like. Um, but then, obviously, even the physical sort of attuned paths, such as like Aspect Warriors, have found their skills have now heightened. You know, thanks to this you know, outburst of psychic energy, like striking scorpions have come almost mm. invisible. Howling Banshees are now, you know, even more formidable in battle. So basically everyone's gone up a skill level. Uh, yeah. So changing it up, uh, at one time, the Eldari 
were rulers of the of their destiny, uh, destiny and their and the galaxy. Obviously, we know that uh, until their greed, you know, and the path of depravity led to the creation of Sanesh, she who thirsts, uh, and obviously the destruction of their. Uh, pantheon as well so as Sinesh came into existence most of the Eldari empire was ripped apart obviously we know that uh, and a permanent warp storm was created the eye of terror and and then that's obviously at the northern part of where the great rift currently is now so the the worst fate for their race was the basically the lack of reincarnation uh, the war god came shattered in pieces uh, with all the other gods consumed apart from uh, Kegorak, the uh, laughing god of the Harlequins. Uh, you got, and basically the souls of the Eldari are now, you know, were now being eaten up by Sinesh, as we know. So the, the factions of the Eldari, you know, tried to deal with it in different ways. The Asherani used, um, use their sort of waystones, um, and then you got the Jakari basically try to get around it by making others suffer um and such like so they all find their own different ways of dealing with it so um some of the asherani believe that that once all the eldari have been confined to waystones uh in their sort of various craft worlds they'll become basically a combined consciousness which sounds really cool mm-hmm. um and this will basically trigger the deity of the god um to come into existence and then you know eventually uh defeat sanesh itself um however some others believe that that they don't all need to die to make that happen. That's quite a you know, good way of looking at things, really. You know, hey, guys, should, we don't really need to all die for this to happen, do we? Um, so, <laughs> and that basically a hidden path may exist, and that's basically where Eldrad Uthran has come into play with that as well. Um, at one point, he obtained all the crystallized bodies of stolen farseers, uh, thanks to the help from the Mask of the Midnight Sorrow, and um, basically took them to the moon, which was known as Coheria, uh, basically, it's a place of great potential psychic energy, which seems to happen throughout the galaxy. Uh, he basically performed a ritual using the the sand of the moon itself, because it's basically like little mini waystones, basically. Uh, and in combination with the stone bodies, he uh, he basically was trying to bring all the departed souls from all craft worlds to basically raise Yinyad, their god of the dead. Mm. Um, this yeah. would drain the power of obviously the the craft worlds, but he was sort of deeming it, you know, worth it basically. So ritual was going to plan, but who comes in? Only the Death Watch. They basically come into the game and distract Eldrad, causing him to lose focus. This caused Yinyad to stir, but not actually fully awaken. Uh, but something did happen. Out pops High Priestess Yuvrain, you know, coming into existence. Um, and so basically she had the power to absorb souls, you know, providing their voices to her cause. Uh, and basically became a new religion for the Eldari, mm. uh, and yeah. you know, bringing all the different, as we know, bringing all the different factions under her banner. Um, so, which is very cool, right? Mm. Okay, let's see what Sinesh has been up to as well. So, <laughs> obviously, the rise of Yunari and Yiniad, who who's deemed often the anti-Sinesh, really, uh, did not go unnoticed with She Who Thirsts and the threat it brought. Mm. So, a Sineshi attack on Bieltan was a good reminder of this. So, rather than those sweet, sweet souls. Uh, all was dust and tastelessness for Sinesh, really, because basically the yeah. the souls were now in the form of the Yukane, which is the avatar of the of Yiniad, the Whispering mm-hmm. God, um, with Yurain being basically a soul thief herself, because she can absorb souls into herself. Uh, these two especially became, you know, I suppose a tasty target for Sinesh is probably the best mm-hmm. way of yeah. of putting it. So the the rise of Eldari uh, joining the Yanari in turn gave 
basically the Dark Prince a really good opportunity. You know, if Yukane and Yvrain were destroyed, Yiniad would basically wither away, and the Inari, would, who have now abandoned their former ways of trying to keep Sinesh at bay, would be vulnerable. Really good tactic, to be fair. Enter Shla- uh, Shalakshi Hellbane, as we know from uh, mainly AOS. Mm-hmm. Here she comes. Um, so uh, the well-known Keeper of Secrets has been basically locked away in the Palace of Punishments for failure, uh, basically, after being banished by the Grey Knights about 600 years ago. Uh, so Shalaxi has been given a chance to atone for this and decided to form a hunting party to take out these various heralds of Uniad, like like Ravain. Uh, so uh, Shalaxi teamed up with Selesk and a lot of other heralds of Sinesh. Uh, Shalaxi basically entered the webway along with a lot of fiends, <laughs> so it's a proper hunting party, uh, to track down Ravain, which luckily wasn't difficult thanks to uh, Shalaxi senses uh, on a uh, mm. on the world of Thresher. Uh, Shalaxi basically first attacked Ravain um, as she and basically a Baltan war host were leapfrogging yeah. through different webway gates. Basically, so the Shalaxi forces uh, smashed into the Eldari uh, with their chariots and you know basically catching them completely yeah. off guard. Uh, Howling Banshees formed you know basically a defensive circle around Ravain, and uh, whilst the Baltan forces basically sacrificed themselves to help keep her alive, ironically buffing her. Because, obviously, mm-hmm. as they were dying, she was absorbing yeah. their souls and getting more powerful. So, which is quite quite amusing in its own way. Uh, based, and, and as I was, she was getting empowered, it allowed her Uvrain to escape, and she basically she outpaced the demons mm-hmm. and, and got away. So, yeah. that's how Sanesh came into the game. Um, let's talk about some of the, the various craft worlds. Uh, so, the Yunari as we know from previous history, Yunari came to the aid of humanity via McCrag, obviously resur- after resurrecting Prince Uriel uh, to aid the victory against the uh, demon attack against the craft world of uh, Yanden. Is that how you pronounce it? Yanden? I was presuming that's how Yeah, you. yeah. I think but excuse so. any pronunciations throughout all of this. You know what, you oh, know what yeah. Warhammer's like with its, are, with its words. We are but shameless monkey. Yes, yeah, like, we cannot understand these words. <laughs> Yanden. Yeah, we'll go for Yanden. Um, helping out obviously means looking out for other Eldari sympathizers because obviously that's what Yunari want. They want, you know, you know, um, Eldari to, to come to their cause. So mm. let's switch up to the Sam Han craft world. So basically many there were to be converted. Their fleet had been, you know, fighting the Imperial Navy, Abaddon's Armada. They've been fighting the forces of Corn um and things like that so they you know they're being kept busy they're they're not in a good state basically uh it wasn't the first, the best time to ask them for aid so you know obviously they're in a bad state along come the unari saying hey join our join our gang it's like really um especially the potential of sort of dividing the clans amongst the craft world as well um you know and obviously and they've got quite bad tempers as a as a uh, craft world as well so they were getting fired up as well so basically they had a meeting of talks, discussing the past, the future. And then all of a sudden, Drakari Strike Force comes in, you know, aiming for your brain. And then in steps, mm. Jane Zar as well, who basically comes to the fight, allowing the Inari to flee. Uh, so we'll switch up to the Eltok. Again, I'm presuming that's how it's pronounced. Uh, Craftworld uh, had their own problems dealing with chaos attacks, uh, but their leaders still believe the Necrontier to be the greatest threat in the galaxy. So it's nice actually how the you'll see this a few times where the Necrons keep creeping in <laughs> to this. Um, so uh, one of their leaders, which is I, I can't even know, is a Yolku Shay, uh, I presume, uh, brought a vision to her to their basically to their seer council, which was named the the Prophecy of Risen Doom. 
lovely name. Sounds like a band. Um, after seeing it half conscious, um, basically speeding up their plans to deal with the Necrons before they awoke. So that's they, that's why they deemed it sort of the greatest threat, um, even at the cost of the the Craftworld's defenses. So they dealt with what's known as the Hyrek Dynasty as it rose. They basically teamed up with Harlequins of the Frozen Stars, and you know where, where they teamed together. Um, because they have basically the same agenda. So whilst they were dealing with these Necrons, they are ambushed by Sineshi forces under Greater Demon Slilath, uh, basically who was taking advantage mm. while they were busy dealing with the Necrons. So, however, any Sineshi, you know, re- recon was dealt with by, you know, Eldari Ranger snipers and things like that. Uh, the Rangers fought on the Terran side of the Great Rift, which is known as Imperium Sanctus, uh, allowing the main part of the craft world to fight the Necrons back on the Eastern Fringe. Um, so, uh, next craft world is Bieltan, um, which I mentioned a few times was break, basically breaking into parts after the destruction of its, uh, Wraithbone endoskeleton, more like, it's basically like a half strength fleet by now. Uh, civil war was on the horizon, uh, since many of the craft world had, had actually inadvertently joined with rain. Um, luckily a key Eldari trait self-belief uh, was keeping them mm-hmm. bonded together, you know, in reality, uh, the ability to rise like a Phoenix from despair. So uh, one little uh, involvement they had was the the chaos invasion of the three sisters, which is basically the three sisters are three exodite worlds. So the craft world was being led uh, was led by three of the phoenix lords, uh, Baranoth, Baroth, I should say, uh, Freogan and Karandas. Uh, the first two arriving basically massively increased morale for these uh, for the Eldari forces there, uh, but the sight of Karandas. Andras, I should say, um, dented that hope slightly. The reason being, uh, the final showdown with Chaos, which you know basically would bring doom forever for the the whole Eldari race, uh, which is actually known as Rana Dandra, uh, will be when all six Phoenix Lords come together. So obviously that's why they were panicking at this point. It's like, uh, wait, we've got three of them here. Is another three going to arrive? And and then the do- you know, the Almighty Doom going to arrive. Uh, but anyway, they regardless the the Phoenix Lords made made short work of the demons, including wiping out the human cultists that had summoned them uh, on the nearby planet. Uh, the rest of the population was wiped out by a psychic tempest, thanks to a combined effort by the Farseers and Warlocks. Uh, the Exodites that remained from this fight uh, were so entranced by the Phoenix Lords that had come to help them that many of them joined Beltan to basically help their cause. So good for them. Uh, so let's move over to Ulthway. Um, so the scryers of this particular craft world have been predicting doom for a long time before the great rift arrived and, and with little power to stop it. They were sort of thinking, right, we can't stop it, but we could try help mitigate it in some sort of way. So their main task had been helping the other races deal with chaos wherever they could basically. So their seer council had been keeping chaos at bay via the eye of terror but they saw this torn apart as part of obviously the, the war masters black crusade. So basically one of their biggest victories in this was helping your travel time and space to, and obviously help aid her on the ground against the black legion, which obviously led to her getting to the shrine of Hera on crag, which brought Rebute Gilliman back to life as part of uh, that story. Mm. Uh, so this basically gave a much needed boost to humanity. So now having a leader with obviously all the strength and skill of a primarch to help fight back chaos or, for a while at least. So, however, despite all the help that, you know, that uh, Elthway had indirectly given, 
the craft world realized they weren't unbreakable either. They'd use their powers to, you know, to pick out weak points in other worlds, especially those starting to fall to chaos. So they, they basically used like black guardian war hosts and aspect warriors to date, to take down corrupt leaders uh, on these planets to make sure that basically a proper replacement was made. So that's quite a cool idea, actually, like just basically assassinating potentially mm. corrupt leaders. Um, didn't always go so well. Uh, the Adonis Palace Massacre, clues <laughs> in the title, um, was an example of that. Basically, sometimes help isn't well received, which is where the Eldari managed to stop a Sineshi uh, summoning just in time on a on a planet called Cadmus Tertius. Uh, but they were sent away because they they were sent away as murderers rather than saviors. Um, and basically, the new leader uh, wanted revenge on the the Eldari, uh, despite having no chaos taint himself uh so he ended up destroying a range of elthwary um oh sorry elthway uh ships under the false pretense of parley so you know mm. even though they were trying to help out it always wasn't well received uh mm. so yeah so that's that side of things uh let's see what the jacari have been up to so vect the supreme overlord of the city is in a bit of a funny position on one hand the rising of Rain and yunari uh which in turn has caused a warp basically caused the warp gaze of demons to uh happen in uh Kimura, um their city which has basically obviously caused them a great cost um they want to you know he wants to get his payback for this uh but he has to go about it in a different way because obviously he can't be seen to do it directly against the inari because by by going directly mm. against the inari he's basically saying they're a threat threat and obviously he doesn't want to do that you know because <laughs> they're beneath him so uh, so basically he would start to deal with the inari uh, vect would use rumors and whispers and such like um but some you know but then saying that some jakari would do it directly especially if it benefited him uh, you got marquis volk here of the lords of the iron thorn uh, he basically attacked his rivals, which is the Cabal of the Poison Hopes, um, as they were suspected of being Yunari. Um, and but he but he was doing it on the basis of I attack them directly. I'm doing it for the cause, honestly. I, <laughs> that's what I'm doing it for. Air quotes. Uh, so basically, the Yunari got a last minute, you know, alarm of this attack, and then you had a big battle between them. The Yunari fought uh, with a madness and desperation not usually seen. Um, but once Vil- Volkir made his way to the spire, Yunari were trapped and killed along with their Archon. Um, so basically, this was an example of what the Yunari came to deal with in Kimura. Uh, but as yeah. the schism erupted, the Yunari created their own little sub-realms and areas within the city. Uh, slowly, the word of Yuniad started spreading. Um, Vect put a massive reward on the head of Riverain, uh, which spun up various hunting parties, obviously. Um, the deadliest uh, of, the, of these hunting parties was Drazar. Uh, who managed to catch up with Rain at Sam Han, uh, getting millimetres from decapitating her. Luckily, the intervention of Jane Zar at the last second stopped this, and you know a whole showdown between them happened, as you would imagine. Uh, Drazar was the better fighter, but Jane Zar was willing to defend at all costs, uh, and luckily managed to do so. Um, one last cool little bit about the Jakaris, what's known as the, this is really cool, the, the Godri uh, Falsehood. So basically, the homunculi beneath Gamora had learnt a horrible form of torture, basically, turning Jakari into the form of a human known as false Ugh. humans. False humans basically become part of a plan on a planet called Godri Sekhmet. So Yuvain was basically preaching to the local pathfinders there um, before being attacked by, all of a sudden, these Astra Militarum forces. And basically, as they retreated, mm-hmm. uh, the Jakari pinned them in the, uh, the Inari in place. Uh, so they're basically 
you know, caught between these two sides. And obviously the, the Astra Militarum had, had been using false humans. So basically Drakari that were looking like humans uh, to, to help trap mm. them, uh, which they almost did. But luckily, as they seem to do every time, they managed to get away. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> that's the Drakari side of things. Uh, so on uh, Ian Dan, uh, the, this base, this craft world is basically known bad times, which again seems to be a common theme with all of them. Uh, chaos attacks, orc warlords, high fleet, kraken, all sorts going on. So basically, even with the great rift coming, they had to deal with a demon incursion on their craft world mm. uh, by one yeah. of the keeper of secrets, uh, who basically <clears throat> excuse me rendered a hole throughout reality, and that came flesh hounds, plague bearers, you know, discs of zinch, and all sorts. Uh, Biodomes were being taken out. Uh, with the Eldari, you know, basically on to a losing battle. Luckily, Aid, you know, came in their form of Harlequins and Warhouse from the other craft worlds, who basically combined to deal with the the demons. But again, this didn't help the resentment towards this particular craft world because it always seems that they're the ones that get bailed out, basically. Uh, so when Ravain uh, came to this particular craft world, um, she was shunned, uh, but a Nurgle fleet attack came shortly after. Uh, where she basically used her Exodite allies uh, to help out. Uh, that's where Prince Uriel uh, came in, helped attack the uh, the Nurgle flag- flagship, uh, who's under a, a basically a big greater demon. Uh, with the prince using his spear, Twilight, uh, he took it straight to the end to the engine of the ship, which is really cool. Uh, he was unfortunately killed by the demon prince, but he was his body was taken back to the craft world where he was resurrected and brought back to life. And obviously that helped turn the craft world towards her cause basically. Cause look, look, look at what I managed to do. Mm. I can bring people yeah. back to life. Always a handy <laughs> skill to have uh, debate raged mm. over the craft world about what they should do. Uh, there's just basically a strong theory that basically if they use the Unari power of rebirth combined with the Drakari mastery of the flesh, they could basically be released from their spirit stones uh, be absorbed, then brought back into a body afterwards, and therefore bypassing the whole Sinesh could have my soul <laughs> thing, uh, and then basically in turn empower and Yinyad. So there was sort of a you know a theory going on there. Um, also, if their craft world could do it, maybe they could all do it. Um, but obviously, the flip side is it could backfire and basically provide I don't know like a big soul buffet for Sinesh, basically. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So they debated, despite neither side of the argument swaying the other, with the planet of uh, Ithgas uh, coming into view as they argued. They thought, hang on, this is, I think, where fate is going to take us. Uh, so let's switch over to the Harlequins. So Harlequins have always been part, had their part in the play of the Eldari with some of their faction joining in with the Inari. Uh, some believe that the Crystal Tome of uh, Kegarak uh, says that not only can Sinesh be defeated, Sinesh can be turned against itself. Um, so just like the other craft worlds, the, the various Harlequin troops have, have got their own agenda and not always mixing well. Um, you know, some of them have teamed up to, like I said, to deal with Necrons and such like. Uh, Yvrain, uh was was joined by the Mask of the Midnight Sorrow, along with the Brotherhood of the Death Jesters. Basically, seeing Sinesh get destroyed by the birth of Yuniad, quite ironic. Um, mm. So they had their agenda there. So Harlequins, you know, share similarities with the Inari in their own way because because basically they both play by their own rules uh, and therefore not relying on spirit stones, but that the laughing God will absorb them at death. You know, that's sort of basically how the Harlequins play it. Um, With, you know, with solitaires playing the role of Sinesh and walking the path of damnation, uh, they've become the most skilled of warriors as, as Rain uh, first saw firsthand on Belial 4, um, as one fought hand to hand with the Keeper of Secrets. So obviously she realized I need a solitaire in my gang. 
And again, mm. that will come about later. So your brain was basically haunted by visions of Shalaxi Hellbane, hunting her, you know, from before, um, whilst killing her companions one-to-one. So she had this very vivid dream of, like I said, all her companions dying uh, at the hands mm. of, of Shalaxi. Um, by basically dreaming in quite a lucid state, um, she sort of saw, a, you know, in a vision, a combination of craft worlds, Drakari and Harlequin warriors all working together. You know, she thought, huh, mm. this is how we're going to defeat Slanesh. Um, so basically, to make this happen, she would need champions of the various factions. She had the Vizark, she had uh, Yukane, she had Jane Zar, she had Lilith Hesperax, had joined, you know, from the Jakari, uh, for her own self-interest, basically. Um, but to get the help of the Harlequins, especially a solitaire, you know, that's going to be a tough job. But fate came to her in a dream. Sound like I'm, I sound like a prophet, no? Um, dreaming of two souls, one Eldari, one a powerful human psyker. Who could this be? Uh, would be vicely important. Um, then, as she lay in meditation, the Vizark advised a former Harlequin and a human female with black power armor and white hair was to speak to her. Uh, don't know who that could be. Um, mm. They spoke of impending doom, and Yvrain basically agreed to to come to their aid in the future when called upon, and in return, ask for the former Harlequin to seek out her biggest prize, a solitaire. Um, so this is where things, you know, for, for them come down to a bit of a showdown. Uh, so Yvrain had basically been sowing the seeds of the Inari throughout all the various craft worlds. And and basically this would result in a climax of events on uh, the planet of Ithglas. Um, so basically the journey was uh, was quite tough. Again, very common thing you're going to hear amongst these books. Uh, losing ships to storms, uh, heretic astartes and other such threats. Uh, the planet was familiar to to Yvrain, uh, it'd been a, self, a safe haven for her when she was, you know, once upon a time a Corsair queen. Uh, it's quite a beautiful place, but most importantly, it's the location of a world shrine, uh, basically where she would find the exodites that she was looking for. Uh, so when these exodites um, were actually, these were actually souls formed in like a gestalt, uh, basically like a loose form of a, an infinity mm-hmm. circle, basically. Uh, so she spoke to the chieftains there, the ones she had befriended in her former life when she was known as uh, Am Harrock uh, as a Corsair. Uh, so the chieftains would basically re- decided they would remain neutral, not supported her, but we're not going to get in your way either. You know, you do, you do you do what you need to do. Um, so basically leading up to this, your reign had been sending messages out to, into the ether, asking for support of, Basically, what was about to come down to a showdown uh, with the Sneshi party of Shalaxi, basically, because she knew that it's going to catch up her. Uh, you know, ultimately, she'd seen it in her dreams. So the Adari and their leaders, you know, Farseers, Homunculi, Shadow Seers, etc., all arrived on the planet, began debating about their race, and and obviously they came to no agreement. Shock, horror, um, which Yvrain mm-hmm. had obviously expected. Uh, but many had come to aid her directly. Jane Zar, Lilith. Um, the mask of uh, midnight sorrow, including a solitaire now, uh, and corsairs among others. Um, but basically, if she could use this force of mixed Eldari to defeat Shalaxi Halbane, it may show the doubters: look, 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 we can we can achieve if you all team up. Um, and then, again, I'm going into profit mode again. On the sixth hour of the sixth day of the sixth week um, since her arrival, an Exodite messenger basically came with news of demons uh, who couldn't be stopped. So as the messenger died, a sickly acid rain came and Shalaxi Hellbane appeared. 
uh, Uraine knew the plan to the second as she had dreamt it all, uh, managing to catch out advancing demons um, as they thought as they thought they would be the ones doing the surprising. Uh, the demons fought back while Shalaxi Hellbane uh, came towards them, and then the five champions: Uraine, the Vizark, Lilith, Jane Zar, and now the newly um, allied Solitaire isolated Shalaxi while the other Eldari forces fought as a team with such precision only their race would be capable of. The final showdown was set to form the stuff of legends. Du, du, du. <laughs> so yeah, that's what the Eldari have been up to. That has mm. been it. Yeah, pretty busy. Mm. <laughs> they had a whole little civil war mass, we got to get together to save the world thing going on and no one else noticed. Yeah, basically. (laughs) (laughs) Alrighty, righty, righty. Well, let's take things over to book two of Psychic Awakening, Faith and Fury. So, uh, while the Eldari had quite the galaxy-spanning trip, um, our tale for Faith and Fury is uh, much more limited. It's set basically entirely in the Teledus system. So... This is essentially seen as a stronghold of the Imperial Ecclesiarchy. It's this system that's filled with navigable warp routes. Trade goes through there. Tithes go through there. Uh, It's a real sort of center point of Imperial control in that particular part of the galaxy. Uh, Its capital world is called Benediction and is entirely covered with a solid gold Theocropolis, which is a religious necropolis. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> nice. Uh, so they they re-sculpted the entire planet into a giant mausoleum temple, which is pretty impressive. Um, mm. It's a yeah, uh, it's a big pilgrimage site. Uh, and while it's while it was in its heyday just before uh, the beginning of the psychic awakening, it had some rough times in the past uh, when Goj Van Dyer uh, rose to power and sort of tried to take over the entire Imperium. Uh, the people in the Teledus system and the Veritas subsector it's part of, were one of the groups that stood up to his uh, tyrannical rule. And as such, the entire place was basically put on brutal military control for the entirety of that, until finally, the great Sebastian Thor, along with Ghost Van Dyer's own bodyguards, put an end to his terrible tyranny. And uh, the plan Thor had to do with uh, Teledus system after that was, it was nice, then it was brutalized for standing up for its faith, so let's make this th- one of the prime centers, apart from Holy Terror, of course, of faith in the Imperium, and uh, brought it to its sort of shining glory days. Um, <clears throat> now, of course, nothing beautiful lasts forever, especially <laughs> when there are forces arrayed against the Imperium that hate the very fiber of its being. Uh, in particular, it's time for everyone's favorite character whom no one hates at all. It's Corfeyron, everyone. Yay! Yay! It's Logan's surrogate father who beat him very badly as a child, and we don't like Corfeyron. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, He's still around. I honestly didn't know that he was still around in the 40s. No, nor did I, actually, no. I thought he he died sometime in the intervening 10,000 years. Uh, But no, he's Mm. still around, Uh, and his master plan for the longest time, has been to utterly crush the Teledus system to sort of evoke this wave of religious terror and sorrow that would break the Imperium spirit as a whole. Uh, so, he's got a plan. He's a man with a plan. He's a word-bearer. There's ways to, uh, to do things as a word-bearer, and that way is the word and faith. <laughs> 
So, of course, all across the Teletus system, these little cults started popping up. These weren't chaos cults. It's very important. They were just splinter cults of the Imperial Creed, but they were just far enough away uh, that they were sort of being barely tolerated or, in some cases, even actively persecuted by the Adeptus Ministorum itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and once a particular cardinal, Morst Bolifax, his name, because wonderful names they have in the Imperium, uh, <laughs> sort of rose to power to rule this subsector, uh, he was a very staunch traditionalist. He was very suspicious of anything that deviated the slightest bit from the standard imperial creed, and so uh, began a massive campaign of oppression, persecution, and purging against people, I should point out, are of the exact same faith as him. They're just practicing it a little bit differently. (laughs) Like, the example given is one of these subcults is, is, what's the name, is the Witnesses of Boris Minor, who believe that only by enduring appalling grief and loss can one come close to understanding the Emperor's sacrifice for humanity. Like, these aren't bad mm. people. No. They've got a, they're a little weird, but, like, they're not, they're not necessarily hurting anyone any more than the no. standard Imperial Creed is, but they're not right. They're not us. Not, so, uh, they're all a little weird. Yeah, exactly. Um, but, you know, he's a staunch traditionalist, so he had the vast majority of them crucified and stoned to death. <laughs> because the Imperium right. is a wonderful place to live. Um, <laughs> uh, and uh, whatever remained of these little sects were, after that grand purge, infiltrated by orators and iconoclasts, all serving the word bearers. And they sort of started railing against the ta- tyrannical rule of the minister and priests. And, you know, these purges and executions, they're not right. The Imperium must change. <laughs> We must rise up, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And they started comparing Bolifax particularly to Goj Van Dyer, who in the Toledo system, that's a big comparison to make. Like That's a big statement and everything. Mm. Uh, and sort of playing up this climate of, of uh, fear and hatred, they began indoctrinating a whole bunch of people, not just in those splinter cults, but these began swelling, becoming more popular. Um, now, they were all being turned to chaos worship, but they didn't know. Because the thing about chaos is it's very insidious, and you can corrupt someone with metaphor and allegory, and you know, you know, the proper way to pray to the emperor is to you know kneel down and pray facing one direction, then turn and face seven other directions each day. Do that eight times a day, eight times eight. It's holy number for the emperor. Trust us, totally, uh, totally fine. <laughs> um, and sort of cells of these of these sects started popping up all over the system as the warbearers began their infiltration. But you won't win a war, even one of faith, with men alone. You need transhumans. You need more space marines. Mm. Uh, so with uh, this, Corfairon started assembling a conglomeration of allies from many different trade allegiances and renegade chapters. In particular, uh, a warmonger from the Night Lords, Yaris Kine, was given promises of souls to torment and the finest pickings from the resource-rich system. And the Iron Warriors were asked to join so they could test some new weapons. Um, <laughs> we also had uh, the Infernal Houses of Rakul and Commentus from the Chaos Knights pledging to the cause. And, of course, millions upon millions of cultists and traitor guardsmen. Uh, and thus the work began. The cults were quietly growing in strength, the assembled forces were preparing to come in system, and then the Great Rift sprung open across the galaxy, Cadia fell, the world is in chaos, Corfairon hears that Gilliman might be back, he's like, okay, no, I'm, I'm really angry now, we've got to do this now. What, Gilliman <laughs> just left Terra? He's on a ship, he's not going to be off the ship for like a year, real time? Spring the trap. 
do it now. <laughs> he's, do, he's doing his crusade stuff. He won't pay attention to us. Uh, and an entire armada of Chaos Marine vessels just appeared in system and began to destroy everything because it's chaos. That's what they do. Yeah, that's what they do. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so Corferon knows that the success of this mission would basically center on how quickly they could break the capitals, capital world of benediction. Uh, he was very obsessed, obviously, with uh, symbology and uh, rituals and all that and knew that this particular shining embodiment of the imperial religion had to be broken. Teletus would, as the system, would only fall to his will if this beacon of hope was utterly destroyed, raised to the ground, covered in terrible sigils, all that kind of stuff. But he also knew that if the fighting was only at Benediction, the Imperials would handily outnumber them and be in a defensive position, so it probably wouldn't go so well. So, the Night Lords come into play. (laughs) The Night Lords had sent a kill team to the astropathic relay at the edge of the system, completely butchered it, and then set off a cyclone torpedo in the middle of it. <laughs> Just break any chance of reading the, reaching the wider Imperium. And uh, the Night Lord's battleship, Nightmare of Celix, slipped to the far edge of the latest system, which is this terrifyingly dangerous asteroid belt, uh, and activated something that readers of the Night Lord's trilogy might recognize... A little bit. Uh, they had several thousand astropaths on board, and they started torturing them all at once to create a terrible psychic scream that blocked all forms of communication in the system, except like demonic ones, basically. <laughs> uh, yeah, very similar to the uh, the Night Lords books where they had a terrible psychic scream scrambler mm-hmm. thingamajig going on. Um, so the the key the key thing that this achieved was. The Night Lords were in a terribly dangerous asteroid belt. There's a massive psychic scream. There's a massive psychic scream so powerful that the Imperial Reinforcements navigators went blind, fell out of the warp right into the asteroid field, bringing the ships with them. <laughs> um, so uh, essentially the Night Lords are busy tying up all, almost all the possible reinforcements by dragging them back into real space far away from where they're meant to be and then doing like hunt and seek uh hide-and-seek, hide-and-seek sort of hunting in this asteroid belt. You know, really playing up to their best aspects there. Mm. Uh, The Iron Warriors uh, were tasked with destroying Grodask, which is sort of this bastion world, which provided the majority of defences for the Toledo system. Uh, And the Warpsmith in in charge here, Warpsmith Etrigar, saw them as the perfect testing ground for a new type of weapon, something called a Soul Harvester. Um, and this is, this is the, this is the extremely crazy 40k bit. A soul harvester is a demon factory in space. It's a big, (laughs) it's, it's it's an entire hive sized factory that produces demon engines in space with big mecha tendrils that you crash onto a planet. It digs into the planet's crust with the tendrils and then spews out all the troops it's carrying the troops kill a bunch of people. It sucks up all the souls of the dead. You shovel all the broken tanks and broken armor stuff into it, and it pumps out more demon engines in, like, a perfect infinite loop, is their <laughs> idea, at least. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a it's pretty so crazy 40K. siege weapon. It's so 40k. We landed <laughs> we landed our weapons factory at the edge of the battlefield so we could produce tanks faster. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Logic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, Corfairon wasn't really bothered about what those guys were doing, honestly, though, as he knew they were doing their job because if they're distracting the Imperial forces at all, he can focus on the assault of benediction. 
All right. Um, and of course, there wasn't really any warning about this assault. So uh, the local defenders, the Ashton Militarum in the system, were well, one could say they were left reeling. They were uh, <laughs> unprepared, <laughs> perhaps completely caught by surprise. Hmm. Um, fortunately, the Order of Our Martyred Lady, the Sisters of Battle, were present, and their canoness Sarita sort of took charge of the on-ground defences for benediction. Um, the battle fleets orbiting the Bastion world of Gredask, of course, suffered terrible losses as they attempted to short-range warp jump to defend the capital of Benediction and instead got dragged over to where the Night Lords were. Uh, <laughs> because, of course, <laughs> they did. Uh, and on all fronts, the Chaos Forces sort of gained this terrible momentum and uh, the Wordbearers did what they do best. They committed terrible atrocities and thinned the veil and began summoning demons everywhere. Uh, but, you know... The faith of the Imperium will not be broken so easily. They're, no. they're good at what they do. They're good at faith. Within the heart of the Grand Honorificum, which is sort of like the great temple city of benediction, 10,000 priests, acolytes, and non-militant sororitas gathered in communal prayer. They didn't move. They didn't eat. They didn't even drink for days on end, sort of praying to the God Emperor for salvation and forming a furious psychic beacon that was an actual, like, navigable point in the ruins of what was left of the Astronomicon. And so, <laughs> just as it was, seemed like the darkest hour had come, it was too late, they picked up a signal at the edge of the system. A Salamander's strike cruiser had managed to evade the psychic screen by following their, uh, their faithful psychic beacon and was making its way to benediction. Hooray! Captain Mirsan had heard them, and he was coming to defend the civilians, as the Salamanders do best. Uh, Corfairon, of course, knew there would be a reinforcements coming eventually, but, you know, it's all the better. What, what fun is, uh, burning a system to the ground if you don't get to fight space marines, you know? Exactly. You know, it's all good. Yeah. yeah. Uh, they really got into their work. They slaughtered defenders left and right. They did these terrible mass sacrificial rituals on an industrial scale as they began drawing forth demonic reinforcements to sort of shore up their losses. Uh, and the Salamanders were, of course, arrayed against them. But there was only half a company of Salamanders. <laughs> That's all that made it through. Um, but they were defending. They were protecting a civilian population, which is what they do best. So uh, they did their absolute best to sort of confine the flow of the battle. They, you know, picked the worst parts of the fighting and attempted to draw them away from more uh more fragile areas and away from the evacuation shelters and anywhere civilian casualties could happen they was like we got to draw the fighting away from there we can bear the brunt of it sure there's only 50 of us but we're space marines we can do it <laughs> uh unfortunately corfairon isn't here to kill space marines and while it makes it much more enjoyable he knows what he's up he knows what he's doing so uh, a lot of times the word bearers just kind of ignore the salamanders attempting to draw them away from civilian populations <laughs> Um, but it's all good because Honorificum, uh, itself was, you know, it's this big sort of temple city. There's only way to access it, access it is there's these four bridges. And so the salamanders are sort of draw, trying to draw their word bearers away into the ruins of the city around it. The Order of Our Martyred Lady are defending the bridges themselves. Um, but there's one thing that was really helping. Uh, do you remember when we covered Vigilus? Uh, mm. Certain cities had psi shielding, yes, uh, like yeah. literally a big psychic barrier that was being generated like a Geller mm -hmm. field. Yeah. Yep. Uh, so Honorificum benefits from having one of these. So the worst of the artillery was prevented from striking the city. But 
Corfairon, he's a canny lad. He knows what he's doing when it comes to dark rituals. <laughs> uh, so the river that supplies the city with water, he flayed a thousand priests and poured their blood into the water and then transformed it into this ocean tidal wave of superheated demonic gore to literally wash away the defenses of the city. Like, he caused the river to rise up, break its banks, and flow uphill towards the city and essentially just fry the uh, the generator for the shield. <laughs> he's uh, a naughty bugger. He really he's is. very naughty. Yeah, all, <laughs> a thousand priests. That's a lot of work. Um... And so, in this way, the way to the heart of benediction is an entire, an entire planet was open, and this massive amount of slaughter that began as soon as the defenses were basically useless tore open a whole bunch of warp rifts, even without the word bearers trying. And demons of corn just started spilling out absolutely everywhere because, of course, they did because you transmuted a river into solid blood, <laughs> and corn likes that. <laughs> <laughs> um, the demons were a little bit indiscriminate. Uh, there are a few word bearers who might have been killed by friendly fire, uh, but most of the damage was contained to the Imperial side, so that's that's fine. Um, but hope blossoms in the darkest hour with the miracle of Saint's Wall. Mm. Uh, so as Canoness Sarita and her warriors were about to be completely overwhelmed, the civilians hiding in the Honorificum took up arms beside them, inspired by their valiant last stand. And, of course, the word bearers and their demon allies were not very impressed by this. They had their little bit of laugh of, you know, normal humans picking up las guns. Not even guardsmen, just normal bread makers, prayers, priests and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, But that event of faith was of such magnitude with the Sisters of Battle there to amplify it that it awoke the long-dead spirits of the tens of thousands of dead saints buried in the Honorificum to form... (laughs) A wall of golden skull-headed spirits to guard them from harm, uh, and literally, in this case, block artillery fire. Um, <laughs> and, you know, specifically also demons did not do so hot with trying to walk through a wall made of pure psychic faith energy. Yeah. Um, and this is this is part of the psychic awakening. Uh, like, this is a miracle, but throughout mm-hmm. this whole campaign, ordinary people start developing, like faith-based psychic powers like there's tales of like bread makers burning demons to death and like they're freaking out going i love the emperor i love the emperor and sort of coruscating (laughs) holy fire comes out of their hands and stuff like that um corfairon is not happy he's not a happy chappy um and of course (laughs) in the confusion of all this salamanders make an actual assault and manage to split the heretic forces in two uh, sort of breaking the momentum that the word bearers had been building up. Of course, more chaos reinforcements are on their way, but for now, the battle is more or less at a stalemate. You know, the defenses are still up, but the attackers are still there. It's, it's not doing too badly. Mm-hmm. So let's go and see what the uh, Iron Warriors are up to. Yeah, so, that's... Uh, Warpsmith Atrigar, really not interested in the plans for breaking the spirit of the Imperium or anything. He's not, he's not here for this. He's here to test... A big demon engine. And test a big demon engine is what he's going to do. Uh, the way it's described makes it sound like it's essentially a big giant space squid. But made of metal. <laughs> and I love it because it's like, it's cephalopodic. It's powered by this big demon forge. It's got these tentacles and it just crashes down onto the surface of Gradask. The most heavily defended planet in the system providing billions of troops to the Astro Militarum every year. Um, and this thing just latches onto the surface like a 
tick onto a dog. And um, <laughs> these hab block sized tentacles come crashing down and... As they hit the earth, all these hatches open, iron warriors spill out, there's mauler fiends and forge fiends springing out everywhere. Um, and we start a really big planet-wide siege um, <laughs> against a whole bunch of people who weren't prepared for a, a hive city, essentially, to crash directly into the planet. <laughs> um, and it's it's a, it's a pretty good siege by the terms of the iron warriors. There's, there's defenders, there's vehicles, the two things iron warriors love to slaughter. Uh, and every time a tank is blasted to pieces, a Chaos Knight or a team of Iron Warriors grabs that blasted tank, pulls what's left of it back to the, uh, back to the Soul Harvester, shoves it into the hatch, gets sent down to the forges, melted down, and it turns into a Venom Crawler or a Defiler or a Mola Fiend. Um, and it's proving very effective. This is a really effective tactic of, uh, oh, we lost a tank? Oh, we, no, we, we didn't lose a tank, we got a new one. And it's hungry for souls. <laughs> the best kind of tank. <laughs> best kind of tank. It doesn't run on Prometheum. It can go anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Renewable energy. <laughs> Renewable soul energy. <laughs> Look, as long as you've got slaves, this thing will keep going no matter what. <laughs> oh, uh, God, where's the Warpsmith Musk of uh, the Iron Warriors <laughs> Legion? Oh, God. Um... And uh, they're pretty satisfied with this experiment, so the Iron Warriors are getting ready to just orbitally bombard the entire planet. Uh, when a warp disturbance was picked up, someone had slipped by the Night, uh, night Lords again for the second time, um, and two capital ships dropped out in the glorious colours and iconography of the Black Templars. We're on crusade, boys. Always. Uh, <clears throat> we're on crusade always. Uh, specifically, these Black Templars were from the Rutherian Crusade, and the two ships were all that could be spared, despite this being like the heart of Imperial faith across half the galaxy. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, it's all good. Uh, they also brought some Imperial Knights with them, which is nice, because, you know, the situation's pretty grim. You need all the help mm, you can get. Yeah, essentially all the survivors of Gradask had retreated to a polar citadel called Fortress Resolve, which is a lovely sounding place, um, <laughs> and the Iron Warriors were sieging the hell out of it. <clears throat> However, the Black Templars took stock of the situation and said, it's nice that the defenders are still alive, we really can't help them, we've got a deal with the big weird squid thing stuck to the side of the planet. <laughs> <laughs> sort of as long as that's going on, They've basically got an infinite supply of armored vehicles, so we really mm. got to get rid of that. Um, so they did the uh, the most out of the box thing I've ever thought of, which is they used Imperial Knights as a distraction. <laughs> <laughs> they deployed an entire cadre of knights, which I think is at least five or six knights, mm. literally to draw troops away to another location. And the Black Temples went cool. Uh, keep slaughtering the infantry. You'll you'll do fine over there. And then uh, they dropped directly into the top of it. In the case of the Inceptor squads, literally dropping through the ceiling of the Soul Harvester, <laughs> um, sort of breached through its carapace and began fighting these flocks of Heldrakes inside it. So to, again, to give scale of this, this is this is a thing so big there are flocks of Heldrakes just flying around inside it as soon as you breach it. Uh, <laughs> Again, completely massive. They're basically assaulting a, a, a hive city, a small country. Mm. Um, and uh, this this Black Templars uh, assault team suffered terribly grievous losses because they essentially dropped into, again, a fortress from orbit. Um, 
a fortress manned by Iron Warriors, no less. Mm. Uh, but at the cost of the lives of the entire Black Templar strike team, managed to actually find the, the factory part of it, the Demon Forge, and set off a cyclonic tor- torpedo, much like the Night Lords did uh, earlier. The exploding, the resulting explosion blasted the assembly halls and charnel factories to atoms, but didn't actually destroy the Soul Harvester completely itself. It held on. It was oh. still alive. Um, it was, they'd essentially sacrificed their entire team to buy some time, a vague amount of time that in which it would not be able to produce more stuff until it regenerated its demon factory, which is <laughs> a terrifying thing. That, like, this is a living, growing, factory world thing. Ugh. Um, <laughs> yeah. Nice. Um, mean, yeah. Meanwhile, the Night Lords are having a great time out in the asteroid belt. Um, basically, every time Imperial cruisers and their escort ships were dragged off course, the, uh, Night Lords would sort of start out from behind asteroids, board, uh, and completely slaughter everyone on board, then just leave the ship floating loose in the, as another piece of debris for them to hide behind. Uh, and as it went on, more and more reinforcements desperately needed by the Imperial side just didn't arrive. <laughs> Imperials, very confused. The Night Lords, very happy. Um, <laughs> but an unexpected quarter gave some relief. Uh, a strike force of vanguard space marines from the White Scars under the command of Yodaga Khan had actually been tracking this particular Night Lord leader for several months uh, by following the psychic energy of the thousands of tortured people on board his ship. Oh, lovely. Um, <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> Um, and they'd sort, they'd literally for months been following this trail of terrible destruction and desolation he'd left, uh, and were pretty angry at this point. Um, and so instead of unintentionally getting dragged towards this psychic beacon of despair and pain, they were intentionally dragged towards it, and so were prepared for a fight, uh, which is nice. Uh, so when they came into real space, there was in this graveyard of torn, broken ships orbited by flayed, vacuum frozen corpses. Because mm. uh, again, Night Lords, terrible people. Um, and there was no sign of their prey, but all these ships started appearing out from behind asteroids. You know, it was an ambush, but they knew it was going to be an ambush. Um, the Night Lords force was smaller, but had the advantage of kind of sort of surprise. You know, they were able to attack not in the direct facing of Lance batteries and that kind of thing. Uh, they actually managed to board the cruiser Thunderstone with an incredible number of Raptors who basically destroyed most of the crew and sabotaged the engines before getting driven off the ship by the White Scars themselves. And as soon as the battle got a little a little fraught, the Night Lords got off this White Scar ship and flew off deeper into the asteroid field. And uh, we began a little bit of a death hunt. Because uh, the Night Lords just turned this into their playground. Uh, they were having a great time. The White Scars, you know, at this point, this battle for the system has probably been going on a month or two. Uh, so the Night Lords have had time to really, really sort of make this place their own. Um, so uh, they had little bases set up with lures, uh, whether they were on asteroids and little planetoids or on broken Imperial ships. And everywhere the Night Lords lured the White Scars to make a landing and look for them was laced to the burst, to bursting with traps. There were loud strip wires, <laughs> there were claymore mines, there were probably swinging blades and 
pitfalls of some description. Um, <laughs> this is uh, this is where Vanguard Space Marines sort of uh, began coming into their own with all those extra Auspex uh, pieces of gear, uh, all those goggles and scopes that actually able to sometimes <laughs> spot traps, um, <laughs> but only sometimes. Um, <laughs> Essentially, Incursor squads paid a really heavy toll, being the uh, the forward arm here, having to go through these terrible death zones to figure out where the traps were and find the Night Lords for the rest of the White Scars to then come mop them up. Uh, and White Scars are all about speed and uh, adaptability, and they had to go really slow, uh, and the Night Lords really were successfully styming their usual tactics. Uh, they were, you know, teleporting uh, Chaos Terminator units into command squads and things like that. Just really, like, really messing them up. You know, their drop their drop ship was about to pick them up when a Helldrake tackled it out of the sky and stuff like that. <laughs> uh, it is, it's not going well. It's really not going well. Um, but under, under good leadership, the uh, White Scars were able to adapt. They started doing uh, Desperate Retreat false... Uh, false words, feints. There's the thing, feints. <laughs> they feigned desperate retreats. They sort of drew uh, the less wary night lords into kill zones. Uh, if one of their ships was damaged, the white scars would sacrifice it to get night lords sort of drunk on the thrill of murder and torture to come in too close and get hit when the uh, plasma engines blew. Uh, and sort of hour to hour, the advantage shifted back and forth between the two sides, but they still couldn't find the Nightmare of Celix, which was still somewhere in this asteroid belt, screaming out this terrible psychic beacon, and until they could cut that off, it would continue to be this terrible playground of horrific, horrific murder and booby traps, because, again, yeah. Night Lords. <laughs> yeah, chaos mm. being chaos, I get the chaos gist. Chaos being <laughs> chaos, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and, uh, that, that was, uh, more or less the tale of, uh, the Toledo system. The fighting <laughs> continues to this day, presumably. Cool. Right. Okay. Well, should we travel to Baal and see about their bug Ooh. problem? Let's. Oh, yes. Right. Yes, let's. <laughs> so, uh, the Ordo Xenos, uh, felt that naming, you know, Tyranid forces by names such as Lathiathan and such like meant that they understood the nature and plans of the Tyranids. But oh, so mm-hmm. wrong they were, as you know, various tendrils would attack without you know warning and reason, meaning that monitoring them, you know, you know, wouldn't allow you to pass ward in, you know, to obviously yeah. whoever they were intending to target. Uh, so this is where we bring the red scar in. Basically, the red scars are a region of space with like thousands of crimson tinted stars, hence you know where the name comes from. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're most given off deadly radiation. Lovely place. Don't go on the holiday <laughs> though. Um, However, despite the you know losses of billions over time, this didn't stop the Imperium settling there and, and obviously mm. you know, draining those overly lovely, tasty resources. So the uh, the tendril that approached the uh, Red Scar was uh, just just a hint of what the hive mind had, uh, but obviously it was but it was actually still the largest number of hive ships that mm. they've ever seen in one part, um, and was basically named the Cryptoid. Uh, tendril uh, heading for the worlds of uh, cryptus hence the name mm. uh, this area was sort of rich with promethean and solar energy arrays and therefore nearby astra militarum and sister battle were often sent there to defend it uh, which proved f- fatal for all of those that were defending as you know each planet was taken you know one by one and then mm. baal the home of the blood angels was alerted uh, commander commander dante already knew of the threat and the danger it posed obviously to baal itself hoping to see that 
you know, Cryptus as, as a way to slow down the Tyranids and, you know, drain some of their resources in turn. Uh, the Blood Angels defended with, you know, their usual ferocity uh, on Cryptus, but we're starting to get overwhelmed with the, the battles, you know, as, uh, uh, you know, in the point that they woke up a, a nearby Necron tomb that was near, happened to Yay. be or, you know, orbiting a bar, you know, by uh, unknown to the Imperium at that time, obviously. They knew about it then. Um, luckily, they <laughs> managed to turn back the Tyranids by basically agreeing an uneasy alliance with the Necrons, naturally, at a great cost to them. Uh, which is, I love that. I love the Necron Blood Angels Alliance. That's the thing. That's in what some of the other stories. It's, it's worth checking out. Um, the, the Blood Angels headed back for Baal, uh, with Dante summoning as many of the successor chapters as would answer the call to you know defend the homeworld. You may think, ah, oh, this sounds like devastation of Baal. Well, it is mm. um, by fortifying more than ever before, including you know enlisting those inhabitants that would wouldn't usually be fighting. They hoped to give themselves a fighting chance as the bio ships, you know, managed to blot out the red sky uh, for weeks. They fought you know each layer of defense, you know, getting taken down until the great rift you know tore itself into existence. Uh, this ravaged the galaxy and you know caught Baal in basically a big wave of energy, which ripped through the Tyranid ships. Hooray! Uh, leaving yeah. the many, <laughs> even the many Tyranids on the planet without a connection back to the hive mind, and obviously they would revert to their natural sort of beast-like state. The Blood Angels launched uh, an attack to you know finally get rid of these uh, Xenos, uh, fighting for their very survival in what became known as War Zone Baal. So, uh, you know, the Blood Angels and their successors, uh, you know, def- you know they were defending with you know bolter, knife, even punching and kicking. You know, they were properly having a good mm. scrap. Uh, you know, if obviously their ammo run out, you know, mortal citizens were doing their bit, you know, defending against the, the claws and jaws of the Tyranids, you know, fighting like it was yeah. their last, as you would imagine. Um, but up above, the bioships had been, that had been flung around by the Great Rift. Uh, you know, they looked above, thinking, oh no, oh no, what's coming? But out came another fleet, one hailing from mm-hmm. Terra, which couldn't be identified by the Blood Angels. Oh, it was only the Indomitus Crusade led by the Avenging Sun, Rubute Gilliman, come to save the day um, and basically coordinated an attack on the Tyranids, you know, using macro cannons mm. to, you know, to uh, to give them a good shooting and uh, basically launched down loads of Primaris Marines via dropships. Mm. Uh, basically, these new Marines were in, you know, Blood Angel successor colours. Whoa, mind trip here uh, who are these guys uh, and helped inspire the remaining defenders which managed to halt the Tyranid advance for a while uh, despite days of fighting and losing many defenders uh, so they had a bit of a breather basically uh, so in in this breather Dante formally accepted the Primaris into the Blood Angels but obviously Gabriel Seth of the Flesh Terrors was mm. yeah, and his reservations you know he wasn't that happy about it uh gilliman updated them on the uh, the great rift and what's been going on and obviously the chaos it had caused no pun intended and appointed dante the regent of imperial nihilus you know coming from you know coming with its humbling power and weight obviously uh baal and its nearby planets were not safe you know still at this point uh even you know because basically the the indominus crusade was about to move on you know they did their bit to help out but they had other things to do uh so you know dante and everyone else thought right we need a plan let's let's plan to get rid of these uh the tyranids that are in our in our backyard so they launched a counter-attack of basically loads of different strike forces uh sort of taking advantage of the the said so the tyranid disconnection to the hive mind because uh, obviously they don't know when it may reconnect you know they may they may reboot you know 
Control delete. Um, weeks of battle followed with you know many dead on both sides. You know blood in Ichor. Uh, blotting out the land. Uh, the Primaris were proving their worth, you know, with the local tribesmen who were defended so heroically uh, being turned into new Marines. I like that idea. I like the fact that mm. they've sort of been doing their bit and like, yeah, there's a prize. You get to be yeah. a bigger Marine. I, that's, there's a bit of yeah, irony yeah, with that, really. So you get to yeah. help defend, you know, you're, you're smaller, obviously the normal Space Marines, but you did your bit. Now you get to be bigger than the people that you helped defend. Um, <laughs> yeah. Wasn't that the end of uh? Wasn't that the end of devastation of Baal? Was a Primaris apothecary uh, finding out that one kid who didn't make it through the selection yeah. for the regular yeah. Blood Angels could be a That's Primaris right. Marine? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, Hooray! The irony there. <laughs> Everyone gets to be a Marine. <laughs> so um, so yeah, so they're proving their worth, and but obviously not only them that was going through the procedure. Obviously, the great Mephiston, you know, went through the Rubicon mm. Primaris as well. So the remaining Tyranids were finally being wiped out, but, you know, they didn't kid themselves that they were free of the Xenos taint. You know, some creatures could still be lurking around in caves and dormant spores, you know, tribes. So basically they used tribesmen and neophytes to, to mop them up. Uh, but obviously this mm. paled in comparison to, you know, what responsibility Dante had on him now with his new title. So the Blood Angels and the successors, you know, had been mauled. None were, none were at full strength, obviously with loss of lots of veterans and even some chapter masters as well. So the other worlds, the Baal systems, were still under threat at this point as well. Uh, the missing bio ships that were still unaccounted for at this point. And, you know, like I said, maybe the hive mind hadn't even noticed that they'd lost this many ships. Mm. You know, it's, a, it's a big big load of Tyranids. So basically yeah. after hearing the turmoil throughout the stars and learning of all the other factions, you know, taking advantage of the weakness in Imperial Nihilist, Dante thought, right, we need to fight back and I'm going to use my new power. So the first priority was to basically reclaim the Baal into re- reclaim Baal as the system itself, and then they basically they were going to start what was known as the Angels Halo, which is basically a plan to reconquer sort of three nearby systems that would basically become mm. a foothold, you know, for the greater sort of battle after that, basically to you know so they could use it for like reinforcements and such like. But you know they had to deal with the Tyranids. So as the Tyranids spread throughout the Red Scar, they had brought the Shadow in the warp with them. You know, hooray, that lovely thing that, uh, you know, caused people to cry for help and, and mm. you know, and cutting off the defences of many planets. So, you know, astropaths yeah. were going insane. And, and and obviously when the Great Rift occurred, many thought that this was the work of the Tyranids. <laughs> so they imagined it was like a really big <laughs> shadow in the warp. Uh, so as the Blood Angels and successors fought across the system with, you know, Astromatarum and other forces helping them, uh, their small forces became were starting to go mad. You know, they were causing riots. They were fighting with each other. They were fighting with the, the blood angels. Uh, and, you know, the blood angels were like, we need to sort this out. This is, this is weird. Um, so in the, uh, the Diaden sector, there was a p- perfect example of this, um, where it was even happening amongst their allies. So basically guardsmen were like smashing their heads against walls. Skatari were getting caught in loops, literally, um, with the nearby li- librarians of the, uh, you know, of the blood angels and, uh, successor chapters were struggling mm. with the psychic force of the tyranids uh so unable to understand what was happening where's this coming from uh there was also something else that was quite pressing basically the black ships which are usually responsible for collecting the tithe of psychers uh hadn't been seen since great rift so these ships you know who are usually mm. run by uh, certain navigator houses throughout the, the galaxy um, you know, obviously with the need of these psychers to be removed from the Red Scar, because obviously, you know, as part of this tithe, that's why they take them, because you, you don't want too many psychers in one area. It's dangerous. Uh, this could mm. be a, you know, a real disaster <laughs> with what's going on. <laughs> so 
as the refugee camps sort of filled with psychers, the blood angels and, and successor librarians realized they had to intervene for the sake of the Imperium, which was obviously not a good thing because it was taking them away from the front lines, but they had to. So basically they started probing for any psychic weakness in these refugee camps. Uh, obviously the task was overwhelming. The amount of psychers in front of them was like, was basically too high, you know, uh, even, even with the absence of the black ship. So it was, yeah. again, again, very unexplained phenomena. Uh, so, for every psyker interrogated, you know, some were getting lost to madness. It was just getting really out of control. So mm. obviously the Tyranids have not failed to notice this. You know, they're good. They're swift. They they learn quickly. So they started adding psyker beasts to their ranks, which is so cool. Like, ah, we'll just <laughs> draw it on a draw it on a chalkboard. Like, yep, yeah, there we go. Right, we'll have one of those, please. Psyker beast mm. uh, to their ranks, uh, which had not which had been seen before, uh, but was happening in battles where there was no librarians present which was a very unusual thing to happen. So the forces of the Imperium were gaining small victories, but in some places they were getting absolutely crushed by the psychic might of the Tyranids. You know, guardsmen going, you know, going mad and even Marines were sort of falling under their witch fire. So yeah, things were not looking good, but after the battle of Baal, some of the surviving success yeah, successors, put my teeth back in, uh, left with their mm-hmm. new Primaris Marines to sort things out back at home. You know, so to speak, uh, with some of those who stayed were, rem- you know, were removed to key locations by Dante to basically start the cleanse of Imperial Nihilus. So some were fighting, you know, for their common bonds. Some were fighting because of his new title, you know, given by the Primarch. Uh, the movement of troops was slow, you know, due to create having to create new ones. You know, wounds were healing and getting repaired, so it was a, it was a slow process. But with his chapter restored, Dante went to Keru, which is basically a moon uses like a monitoring station and it previously been a target for the tyrannage because of it had lots of those yummy rich gases that they mm-hmm. like. Uh, so the, mm. the hive ships were gone, uh, but the weapon beasts, you know, still were hanging around uh, the moon. So if they could clear it out, it could help launch the angels halo, which I spoke about. So while this was happening, Gabriel Seth and the flesh terrors went to secure the first of the points of grace. So basically that's these, these three lo- strategic locations as part of the angels halo because they got to give them names. They don't want to, don't want to call them one, two and three. Of course we want to call them the points of grace. Um, that was deemed important to, you know, that the were, sorry, were deemed important to take back the red scar. So basically they thought, well, if we take these three locations, we can do warp jumps between them basically. So they traveled to the planet, uh, Ashelon, uh, which is part of the Kranos system, and it's, which is basically an industrial world providing supplies. Uh, but the main mm. reason was the darkness seen by astropaths around the planet. It was sort of denser than anywhere else around, and they didn't know what the cause of it was. So Blood Angels and the Angels and Carmine sent Vanguard forces to the second point of Grace, which is basically a collection of space stations and platforms in one of the uh, in the uh, Gamma Four system. It's basically a site of a vital astropathic relay which had gone quiet mm-hmm. hence why they were doing they were sending the vanguard to go in and do recon uh and then basically the, the third and final point of grace was going to be undertaken by uh blood angels captain sandini and he was going to go to bellic alphas so he took a really heavily armed force to wipe out any tyrannies from because it's basically a fortress world uh and then it would he would it would form like a really good base for future assaults but mm-hmm. unfortunately for the Blood Angels and successors. The Tyranids knew what was happening throughout the Red Scar, uh, the tactics being used and why, because basically they had learned this from previous engagements. Uh, they were pushing, you know, pushing the Tyranids for their forces to basically go in, into overdrive. So the hive mind went, go on, Tyranids, go crazy. So uh, Dante 
also instigated smaller missions to you know secure ships, materials, check for weak points, uh, the status of warp storms, etc. So you know you can imagine both sides are sort of getting doing a bit a lot of recon as well as fighting at this point. So the Tyranids still rampage right at the Red Scar with you know the Shadow and the Warp, but Dante was starting to get things in motion uh, as well. Uh, so that was cool. There's also actually a little aside in this book as well um, to do with the. We're talking about Primaris, obviously the the tech and engineering behind the Primaris obviously gave hope to the uh, the Blood Angels and the successors with the possibility, obviously, of eliminating the Black Rage. Uh, debates went on: mm. could it happen? Should it happen? Uh, obviously, but the Angels and Carmine were the first to have Primaris Death Company, so they sort of reside in the fact that okay, we got Primaris, but we still have the Black Rage. Uh, unfortunately for them. Right, so let's go back to Kerope. So basically, the, the Vanguard forces from orbit could see that the Tyranids had surrounded the Imperium presence there, and basically with the people confined to these four cities. Uh, Tyranids were cut off from the hive mind, but obviously were still deadly because they're still in beast mode. <laughs> the uh, the Blood Angels went for the capital, which is known as Sensorum Primus, um, led by one of, the, one of the lieutenants, uh, where basically Blood Angels had defended for months, but, you know, ammo was running shortly, you know, running short, uh, humans were going mad, you know, so they were in a very dire straits then at that point. So during the night, they sent in reavers and cursors and infiltrators, mm. uh, so who covertly went made their way towards, uh, you know, towards the city and even had Mephiston with them as well. So the defenders were basically mm. keeping the Tyranids at bay like with automated guns, and uh, but they couldn't withdraw from the city because basically the city was built at the foot of a cliff, so they had nowhere yeah. to go. So <laughs> at the opportune time, the Vanguard attacked with the Tyranids reacting instantly. Uh, the Reavers, you know, used the time spring from the shadows while Mephiston, you know, took many of them down with psychic power. But then all of a sudden, Blood Angels withdrew, you know, eliminated, stopped firing, etc. Mephiston mm. basically created this massive shield so they could withdraw. Uh, and basically, the ma- so that meant that the main part of the Tyranids chased after them. But Dante had sort of known that there was some form of Tyranid control here. So, Basically, the Tyranid leaders were sending instructions to, you know, to Elictors and Gene Steelers to attack the uh, Blood Angel flanks mm. with, a, you know, and obviously a long battle erupting. But then it was time for Dante's strike. He came down with his own forces, uh, suppressors, etc., to take out the Tyranid leaders while the forces were dealing with the Vanguard. So despite the losses, the Blood Angels managed to wipe out the swarm. Hey. So, hey, <laughs> so <laughs> let's switch up to Ashlon, which is one of, obviously one of the area other uh, points of grace uh, where the flesh terrors were. Uh, so, quick history on Ashlon. Basically, it supposedly used to be uh, a uh, Admech uh, forge world, but the story goes that the Council of Terror grew jealous of it for some reason. Um, because of how well it was doing, pretty much. Uh, and they basically took it by force by murdering all the tech priests. <laughs> thought, We're going to have that Forge I world. Mean, uh, yeah. You know, you know, <laughs> we'll take it. Um, other rumours say that the Admech actually gave agreement for this for reasons, quote marks, for reasons, or maybe that the mm. records have been altered. But who knows? Anyway, uh, the, the Astropaths and Navigators of the chapter could basically see the condition of the area as like a as a, as a mass of a psychic something uh, which seemed to be building up around the system, often giving them you know seizures when they were using their warp site. So this meant that basically the flesh terrors had to be taken to the outer part of the system, as as the as basically the navigators could not get any closer because obviously it would cause some problems. Uh, so librarian Jarrod of the flesh terrors he 
found the source of this issue to basically be this ref- this uh, refinery, a refinery the size of a city um, that was only accessible by what's known as the Via Salostos, which is basically mm. a, this massive, huge bridge uh, which had a toxic drop below. So you don't want to fall off. Um, and as the flesh terrors were looking from orbit, they came across Tyranid bio-vessels and obviously fought them in, in space combat. This also allowed... Uh, flesh terror drop ships to get to the surface while the Tyranids were distracted uh, with many of the Marines to come into the Black Rage looking to spill blood. Mm. Unfortunately for these Marines, they had to drop further away than their destination <laughs> because of the disruptive energies that uh, that were about this place and they, they you know, it was taking down their craft. So they used their, basically their ground transports and tanks. Uh, they travelled to the bridge, uh, but it was a bit odd. No Tyranids were there to greet them. Mm. Uh, but then, all of a sudden, the sky turned dark, and it basically turned out to be lots of winged Tyranids uh, who were met by intercessors and death company piling out the transport. So uh, as they fought, Auspex signals mm. told of larger Tyranids coming to their rear, uh, with some flesh, ter- uh, flesh terror intercessors breaking rank and charging towards the new threat. Uh, so they were losing hard. And to add to this, more dark shapes were coming from the skies. Oh, no. But luckily, it was Valkyrie and Vendetta gunships that were part of the surviving Aeronautica Imperialis who had hidden themselves in the orbital platforms above. So basically, using this break, Flesh Terrors, you know, with uh, Librarian Jarrod and obviously Gabriel Seth made their way to the city uh, to deal with the half-damaged astropathic tower causing this basically this psychic miasma. Uh, and I love this. They basically, when they went in there, they found this huge bloated psyche beast. Uh, like, I, I imagine Jabba the Hutt. Yeah. Um, yeah. Connected to <laughs> lots of astropaths, basically, just like feeding oh. off their energy. It's like this real surreal Ooh. horror scene. Um, mm. So Jarrod, uh, he, you know, he kills one of the astropaths, uh, but unfortunately he was ripped apart himself as loads of Tyranid reinforcements came in. But luckily, mm. Gabriel Seth stepped up and managed to kill the other astropaths before bringing Blood Reaver down on the brain of the beast and obviously removing the psychic taint from the area. Mm. Right, so I'll just wrap this up now. So um, so the you know the Blood Angel forces had made their way to Bellic Alphas, which is the, the other point of grace, the third one, uh, dealing with mm. some bio ships and storms on the way, but generally intact when it came to Planetfall. So various teams split up with the Vanguard forces looking for weapons and tech, including the vital acid that they needed to create Hellfire shells. So the main target was the port complex Riken, which had been basically holding out against the swarms with uh, Astra Militarum defenders, but ultimately they were pinned into a corner. But again, very common theme. So Captain Sandini of the Blood Angels ordered the uh, Militarum to leave the fortress and join them and to basically lead the Tyranids where they wanted them. So reports of psychic events were coming in at this point uh, with various outposts um, uh, lost into chasms. Mm-hmm. Uh, as the guardsmen left, the mounted guns of the fortress, the you know the Tyranids stormed through the gates, you know, Carnifex is tearing the way through. Like, that sounds like the ultimate distraction, Carnifex. Yeah. Um, the, <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the port of Riken was a complex of like landing zones, control towers, uh, with vanguard suppressors, you know, supporting the troops that were in there. Uh, basically, the the Blood Angels' forces then struck, you know, from their fortified positions. They unleashed all their heavy numbers, heavy weapons, with the, the guardsmen mm-hmm. and, and everyone joining in. Uh, the Tyranid numbers were being thinned, but suddenly an earthquake hit Riken. Uh, as the earth gave way, mm-hmm. basically a complex of tunnels could be seen below when they looked down, uh, with the reality that Tyranids have basically been digging through solid ferrocrete for a good long time, and it's all part of their mm-hmm. plan. 
Out came loads of tyrannids of various forms, including psycho beasts that caused the you know cl- the guardsmen to clutch their heads in agony as marines were being taken out with perf- uh, powerful energy bolts. Uh, the blood angels had to defend at all costs, you know, with gene stealers now bursting from buildings. Uh, Sandini called in aerial support, which was quite reduced at this point uh, when it arrived, because basically the bioships that had originally fe- uh, fled had come back. Uh, with their bigger mm. brothers and boarded the Imperial vessels, basically. <laughs> uh, so all of a sudden, black flames and energy were coming forth from the mouths and limbs of soldiers, killing their comrades mm-hmm. uh, and mm-hmm. Tyranids all around them, really. It was an absolute free-for-all. Uh, clearly, this was the work of the witch breeds of the Tyranids, as the Imperial forces were starting to lose hope. And mm. uh, a common thing we're going to say, and presumably they're still fighting. <laughs> yes. Yes, they're very open-ended, these Psychic Awakening books. <laughs> And with the Blood Angels and Tyranids successfully locked in forever and uh, forever ending, for never ending. There we go. For never ending conflict, let's turn our eyes elsewhere to a place of equal psychic importance, to a place rent by the flames of war. We're going to Prospero, boys and girls. Yay! Yay! It's Magnus the Red in Ritual of the Damned. The Damned. Um, <laughs> this one. Uh, comes a comes a cropping comes a cropping comes a knocking. Oh my goodness! Already fried. Uh, comes a knocking after the start of the Great Rift, as opposed to some of these other ones. Uh, because you see, the Great Rift came about, and all the chaos servants everywhere went. Wow, this is pretty great. We can be open and ambitious and fanatical, and no one can really stop us. Hooray! <laughs> um, and this in particular made one red boy, Magnus the Red, the Crimson King. Very happy. Uh, sorcerers in their hundreds were carrying out his will with renewed vigor, whether they, whether they knew it or not, seeking out forbidden, terrifying, hidden law, and disordering the galaxy as best they could. After 10,000 years away from home, he finally returned to Prospero in utter ruin, obviously, after the whole, you know, wolves and Adeptus Custodian Sisters of Silence thing during the Horus Heresy. <laughs> uh, but he began the process of restoring it because, you know, you got to fix things eventually. Uh, he wanted to bring it to a level of magnificence beyond anything he could have imagined as a youth growing up there. He began to, you know, bring its libraries back, collating vast amounts of knowledge, old and new, in towers glowing with brilliant, ever-changing color. He found the most skilled people from across the galaxy to staff it. And as this great work continued to pace, he uh, turned his eye to the greater galaxy and saw... An unforeseen side effect of the Cicatrix Maledictum. Human psychic potential was growing. There were more people with the cool mind bullet powers. Uh, he loves <laughs> he loves the cool mind bullet powers, as old man. He loves them. Can't get enough of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, with the Imperium on its knees, with psychers beginning to flourish across the galaxy, Magnus started putting some plans into action. Of course, other people putting plans into action. The Grey Knights... Psychic defenders of the Imperium and its ever-eternal secret war against demons and chaos uh, were pretty aware of what was going on in terms of uh, the Great Rift and humanity becoming more psychic because they were one of the very few factions that directly benefited from the Great Rift, uh, it turns out, because uh, their recruiting numbers were way up uh, because Mm -hmm. every Grey Knight has to be a psyker. And with a significant increase in the rate of psychers amongst the general human population, 
uh, there were a lot more candidates to become a Grey Knight. Uh, so they were actually doing really well out of all of that. Uh, of course, their, their standard strength was stretched very thin because demons were everywhere. Uh, and so there weren't many Grey Knights at home on Titan, but there were literally more recruits than had ever been all jammed in there, taking the trials, uh, getting the surgeries done, all the kind of stuff you need to become a Space Marine and, in particular, a cool Grey Knight. Um, <clears throat> so, though they do need all these new recruits. Demons everywhere. It's a rough time. And the other major player here in this here bit of the Psyche Awakening are the Dark Angels. Uh, they're, they're, they're in sort of a rough spot again. They are having to cover a large war front. Um, and in particular, the rock, their floating fortress monastery, uh, literally floating through space because Caliban got blown up. Hooray. Um, <laughs> uh, the Horus Heresy, uh, had actually been assaulted by chaos directly twice at this point. Many Dark Angels had been killed, and many successors uh, had been killed as well in the Dark Moor Massacre. And uh, basically, after all the nonsense with the Changeling and with the terrible things that happened in Fenris, the Dark Angels were pretty on the alert for psychic shenanigans involving the Thousand Suns, and uh, all their librarians started getting terrible, terrible visions. Uh, every At any moment... You know, they could be in the middle of training, they could be in a briefing, or they could be in their private meditations. They would just fall to their knees, clutch their heads, and start screaming, uh, having these terrible visions of drops of rain developing to vast deluges, or sparks growing into planet-wide firestorms. Uh, their, their conclusion was, you know, uh, humans, uh, humans are awakened to their psychic potential, and this has made us terribly vulnerable to psychic problems. Uh... So, it's all good. It's all yeah. fine. Loving it. Loving it. Um, this brings us to Sortiarius, uh, which I'm going to call the planet of the sorcerers in the future because pronouncing that is terrible. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> this is, uh, this is, this is, uh, Magnus's home away from home, uh, when he's not at Prospero, which he hasn't been for 10,000 years. Uh, the planet of the sorcerers is the realm that was gifted to him by Zinch for bringing the thousand suns to his service. Uh, it is, a world of complete nonsense. The sky changes color <laughs> at random. The clouds are either completely covering it or they're not there. There's these featureless planes of glass. There's these mazes of mirrors. There's these swamps of flesh. Uh, lightning lances out of empty skies and these literally biting winds, like the wind will physically bite you, races across its surface screaming like a tortured soul. Um... It's a hellscape and inimical to most life, unless you happen to be something Zinch brought into being. So there's actually a lot of Zangor tribes hanging out here, having a great time. Um, <laughs> uh, interestingly enough, they hunt through jungles made of the twisted forms of failed devotees. Uh, so if you're not fervent enough in your worship of Zinch, you can turn into a tree on this hey. planet. Lovely. Which is fun. Yeah. Um, demon engines just sort of roam free and wild across crystal planes. Uh, horrors, screamers, and flamers <laughs> randomly pop into existence. I just got, I just saw, I just got the thought of a demon engine safari. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> and you see now the Mola fiend in its natural environment slaughtering a pack of Zangor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. Um, <laughs> and of, and of course the chaos spawn. The natural beast of the of the area, um, and in the hands of Magnus and the other sorcerers of the Thousand Suns, uh, this 
planet is a literal physical weapon because they can sculpt it as they like. Um, essentially, if you land on the planet and the Thousand Suns didn't want you there, you're not going to have a good time. They could, it's so drenched in warp energy, they can summon legions of demons with a mere thought. The, the hills, the valleys, the mountains, the forest, they can all grow or disappear in seconds, denying cover or trapping you in place, while there are just also tons of thousand suns around, because, you know, <laughs> it's their home world, it's their base of operations, and they can teleport themselves around at will on the planet, which mm. is fun. Yeah, um, but if you set foot on the ground, it's either because you broke down to the ground or an extremely powerful psyche yourself, or they actually let you land. Um, <laughs> although that might be a worse fate than getting blown up in orbit. Um, <laughs> the planet, uh, see, see, Magnus has learned from what happened to Prospero. The pra- planet is extremely well defended against, uh, orbital attacks. There are these invisible hexes that literally suck physical munitions out of reality and throw them into the warp if they attempt to uh, hit the planet. And uh, they can dissipate lasers and other forms of energy-based weaponry into harmless displays of light, much like fireworks. Um, there are also hexes that believe uh, that cause the attackers to believe that none of that happened and that they actually successfully hit and destroyed their target on the surface. Um, <laughs> at which point, a portal can absorb an orbital strike and then open up behind the ship that fired it and have the orbital strike come through and hit the ship that fired at the planet. <laughs> um, it's not it's not a good place to attack. Don't go to Sordiarius. <laughs> um, oh, and that's the, the most fun spell they have, is they have a spell that can cause an enemy ship's warp drive to spontaneously activate. Um, oh. Yeah. Oh, that's you deign to fire upon us? Uh, your ship has disappeared into the warp. Also, you didn't have time to boot up the Gala field, so uh, good luck. <laughs> <laughs> like they, it's it's a very very well defended um, planet, and this mm. matters because part of rebuilding Prospero, Magnus has a lot of books. He has a lot of assets, and at the moment they're all on the planet of the Sorcerer. So the easiest way to get them from the planet of the Sorcerers to Prospero is to uh, summon the planet of the sorcerers out of the warp and into real space uh, in the orbit of Prospero's sun. So it's just another planet in the system now. You can do that because Magnus is a terrible, terribly powerful psyker. And he scares me. <laughs> um, just through sheer force of will, project a planet into reality. <laughs> That's scary. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, so... The two planets are there. He can freely move forces between them now. He can start rebuilding his home, but it's not enough. He has to fortify his position. So, obviously, he completely begins overrunning the nearby Stygius sector with a host, seizing multitudes of worlds across several different systems. And with this, uh, he had sort of the beginnings of a wonderful little second uh, empire. Uh, just across the Great Rift, though. Not actually on the same side of the Great Rift, uh, interestingly enough. I guess... He and his ships are free to move across it. They can control the warp pretty well, uh, as opposed <laughs> to the Imperium. Um, but Magnus wants his scattered thousand suns uh, to return to him, because lots of them have been very independent out there in the galaxy. Yeah. Um, and a lot of them didn't answer the summons, but about a dozen cults did uh, did answer the call and made themselves sort of ritually be reunited with the Legion proper and their Primarch. Uh, at which point the sorcerers commanding those 12 cults were immediately murdered. 
because they hadn't paid attention to Magnus for 10,000 years, and he had no interest in having lesser commanders who might try and rebel against him because, you know, zinch plots, all that kind of stuff. Fair point. Um, Yeah, yeah, so it's like, well, welcome to the club. Uh, Thank you for your loyalty and for giving me direct control of all your rubric marines. Uh, Goodbye. (laughs) 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 Um, But, you know, uh, rubric marines are not enough. Sure, they basically last forever, but there's also not an absolute ton of them. Like, there are some. There's there's a decent amount. But, honestly, to maintain and build an empire, you need not just immortal followers, but you need mortal followers as well. They're handy mm-hmm. because there's so many of them. Um, and he turns his gaze back to the Imperium and ponders the conditions within it and, and thinks, you know, I think psychers are the future. Literally, the future of humanity is eventually humanity will become a psychic race, much like the Eldari. And uh, I look to the Imperium and... They're persecuted constantly. They're burned at the stake as witches. They're subjugated and exploited by the officio assassinorum, by the astropath, by the astropathic choir, by the golden throne itself. A thousand psychers a day are fed to that terrible device. Uh, Magnus wants to build his empire that he's making into a haven for psychers across the galaxy, a sanctuary for people the Imperium targets and alien. He's basically making Genova from um, X-Men. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh and so he set out a little uh he set out a little siren call into the warp this uh this whisper sibilant whisper promising safety learning and acceptance if they come to kneel before the crimson king and form this beautiful society this perfect world um he's, he's got high hopes does magnus is what i'm saying yeah. um now he is a realist he knows that not all of the psychers that he's calling for would survive the journey. And even not all of them would have the uh, the level of intellect and sort of robustness of spirit needed to handle the kind of power he would give them. And for those, when they, when they came to him, they would be given the honor of becoming a ritual sacrifice to Zeech. <laughs> <laughs> You've come so far to serve me. I'm sorry, you're not, you're not an Omega or higher class psyker. So we are going to strap you to the altar and put a demon inside of you. But thank you for coming to the society that promised to keep you safe. Um, <laughs> we'll keep your CV on for the next six yeah. months. <laughs> yeah, if you, if you would experience a significant increase in psychic activity in the next two days, tell us and we'll put your ritual sacrifice off by a week. <laughs> oh, man. Um, and uh, he's, he's, he's really envisioning a lot of change for the galaxy at large. Um, essentially, Magnus... He's a historian. He knows throughout history, many individuals led humankind out of backward times and into the future. And he, he is going to lead humanity to its ultimate potential. Um, and he starts digging into the books. He does what he does best. He researches. And after 10,000 years in the warp, speaking to demons and studying all kinds of witchery, uh, he finds that stuff that he couldn't understand as a child in Prospero is, uh, now has new meaning for him. He can read these things and reads up and discovers a ritual that can accelerate the rate of humanity's psychic awakening across the galaxy. Um... Without hesitation, he orders all his subordinates, hey, we're doing this, gather every sorcery you can find, and I also need 999 volunteer sacrifices. We cannot press them into this, they have to want it. <laughs> um, but, you know, that's Zinch for you. <laughs> <laughs> and it begins. 
So Magnus, is, he's got his big visions. He's doing a lot of damage to the Imperium at large and creating his perfect society. Uh, meanwhile, on Titan, the Speculum Infernus, this weird device uh, held on Titan by the prognosticars, the ones that uh, sort of see the future there and try and figure out where the Great Knights need to go, it's been silent for a long time, and they're all very happy about that. Uh, because the last time it sprang into life, Magnus the Red came back to the galaxy, burned Fenris to the ground, and killed dozens upon dozens of Grey Knights. So they're happy that it's not that it's not activating. Um, but you know things are pretty bad overall. The Thirteenth Black Crusade has destroyed Cadia. Hundreds of worlds are falling, both to rebellion and demon assaults and Xenos assaults. Slavery, the Astronomican had gone out, and even now that it's back on, the other side of the Imperium can't see its light. The Grey Knights are stretched thin, there are these hordes of demons being pushed back across the entire galaxy. Um, but, you know, we still can't tell the citizens about the Grey Knights, it's not allowed. We've got to keep chaos secret, even though everyone can see <laughs> chaos in the sky. Um, <laughs> and, of course, the Grey Knights have been keeping a constant watch this entire time on the Forsara system, which is where Prospero is. Uh, they did, they had not managed to stop the planet of the sorcerers appearing in that area and were determined not to fail. They all knew Magnus was there, but they were stretched so thin that they knew they couldn't do anything about him just yet. Uh, he had so many schemes prepared, but they needed reinforcements. They could not do this alone. The Grey Knights sort of convened together, uh, and they had all noticed something. They'd all noticed this little whisper in the back of their minds, this psychic siren call, um, because, of course, they were all psychers. They had all felt this call from Magnus. Um, if the message had been a little less appealing if it had been a little less seductive and a little less hey the imperium is going to kill you right now come to me and i'll save you uh, a lot of them would have actually ignored it because you know it's normal background demon nonsense mm. uh, but because it's being so forthright in this attempt to persuade people to come to this one place that like, we should probably check out what he's doing make sure <laughs> oh he's amassing followers okay yeah that's pretty bad at which point the machine turns on and goes beep 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 Bad things are happening. Bad things are <laughs> happening. Sort out whatever's happening. Um, and, you know, the years of relative peace of the machine not going off and saying bad things are happening were broken. Um, <clears throat> basically, this uh, this machine is able to sort of gauge gathering psychic or demonic potential in an area that it's focused on. And uh, they had it look at Sortiarius. And uh, there's just this growing evil energy there, this nebulous, bad, vague, psychic psychic doom stuff going on there. Uh, and so all the Grey Knights convened and said, hey, Grandmaster Voldus, let's take care of this. And Voldus said, yeah, we probably should. And sent Brother <laughs> Captain Stern and the Third Brotherhood to go take him out. Yeah, ooh. Um, lots of paladins and purifiers attached to them, but uh, even with all of this... They needed, uh, they needed, they needed some chaff. They needed mm -hmm. some people, some people to die for them and to bring some vehicle support. Uh, and so they went to the Dark Angels <laughs> because, <laughs> you know, <laughs> listen, the Dark Angels also don't like the Thousand Suns. They're relatively nearby on a galactic scale and they know about the Grey Knights. So they're probably the best candidate. It's either True. them or the Space Wolves and, uh, yeah, yeah. Space Wolves. <laughs> 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 yeah, Dark Angels aren't trust aren't trustworthy, but uh, they're our best bet. We need 
to do something about this. So uh, send out the call. Um, and uh, they sent out the call. And it was not uh, it was not a very uh, very solid call. Essentially, once it reached the Dark Angels, all of their astropaths bar one died from the shock of the, essentially a bunch of Grey Knights reaching out and yelling, "Come over here immediately!" <laughs> uh, because of the way that communication works in the forty first millennium, um, the terrible twisted dreams of psychers are a little difficult to uh, to ba 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 ba. You know. Um, What's the word I'm thinking of? Ah, oh, the word. Interpret. There we go. That's the word. That's the word. It's difficult to interpret. So this one astropath, too weak to even hold her staff of office anymore, just collapses down and mutters and raves about winged monarchs, devastated worlds, sixth planets, boulders made of eyes, crystal obelisks, monsters, demons, shields, a, a warped tome of sorcery pierced with a silver sword, doom, burning hatred, eager anticipation... Uh, and after, after a, about five hours, the, all the Dark Angels officers agreed that it was probably something to do with the Grey Knights, and they were probably asking for help with the Thousand Suns, maybe? We think? <laughs> <laughs> Again, I, I, I love that this is like, this is considered a good, strong message. This is clear communications for the Imperium. <laughs> um, the, the, you know, Azrael and Ezekiel of the Dark Angels have some doubts about why the Grey Knights would summon them after everything that went on in Fenris. The, you know, they're like, oh, what if they found out our deadly secret in the rock <laughs> when they came to help us that one time? What did they detect about our dark history while they helped us kill the demons here? Uh, but Azrael also wants revenge for all the terrible things done to the Dark Angels by demons and the Thousand Suns. So, you know, they're like, okay, fine. Magnus is a problem. We'll come help. And he sent Lazarus, newly turned into a Primaris Marine, um, and sort of the first official Primaris member of the Inner Circle, off with some Deathwing and Ravenwing assets, as well as the regular Green Wings, uh, to help the Grey Knights, but also find out what they know about our secrets. It's <laughs> Dark Angels. Um, <laughs> Who did you tell? <laughs> Who did you tell? What do you know? <laughs> Uh, Dark Angels are great. Um, <laughs> uh, they, they made to the designated point, uh, near, near the planet of the sorcerers, uh, at which point a Grey Knight Strike cruiser, uh, with no explanations as to how they had found the Dark Angels popped into existence out of the warp, and after a tense exchange, they were cautiously welcomed aboard. <laughs> Um, with some more clear face-to-face -face interaction on what was actually going on here. Uh, there's some terrible ritual happening down on the surface. We need to stop it before things get worse. Um, they they uh, all agreed that a straightforward military victory really couldn't be achieved here. They had to focus on ending the ritual. And so uh, the Grey Knights had identified this temple on Prospero that was preventing orbital bombardments from reaching the planet. And so the Dark Angels would hit down there, oh, not on Prospero, on Sordiarius, sorry, hit down on there, land there, destroy the thing, which would, as a second hand, draw a whole bunch of defenders out of Tizka, uh, which was a city on Prospero that Magnus teleported over to Sordiarius uh, sometime in the intervening 10,000 years, because he liked his, he wanted his old house, I guess. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, in doing so, in drawing the defenders out of Tizka, that would give the Grey Knights the opening they needed to storm the city, break up the ritual, and 
slay or perhaps even ban- uh, banish or perhaps even slay, I should say, Magnus the Red, uh, which would be nice. And as soon as they entered real space in the system, they began their attack runs, racing to the planet of sorcerers at maximum high speed. You know, Deathwing Terminators and Grey Knights alike in their teleportariums, everyone else in restraint harnesses on gunships, and um, they began planetary assault. <clears throat> As I said before, the planet of the Sorceress is very well defended, so no ship escaped without casualties or significant damage in this fight. Um, but the Dark Angels did manage to make planet fall, which, as we know, means the Thousand Suns wanted them to land. <laughs> Hmm. Hmm. Mm, um, I wonder why. Mm, <laughs> yes. Uh, so when they landed, they found themselves in the sort of jagged, grey, rocky area around a huge ritual space filled with the ravines and crags and these big blue tentacles everywhere uh, that's just started lashing out from under rocks and crushing space marines like small toys. Um, <laughs> they saw their big emerald glass pyramid they had to go for, uh, and they saw Tisco over there, and they're like, okay, cool, we'll make our strike. We'll do our assault. It's weird that there's no Thousand Suns around, but uh, hey, it's probably <laughs> fine. Everyone face the pyramid, and then the Thousand Suns showed up behind them. Um, <laughs> uh, demons literally blotted out the sun uh, as screamers and chariots of Zinch, etc., and Heldrakes uh, began to flood the skies. Hordes of Zangor paraded and stampeded out of uh, these crags and ravines, along with demon engines. And uh, Thrallbrands and other Rubricrae from the Thousand Suns cults arrayed themselves against Archangels, who, fortunately, had brought a lot of tanks. Uh, in particular, some anti-air tanks, because when you're fighting demons, you know some of those are flying. And mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's, uh, it's good, to, good to deal with that. But, uh, you know, uh, it's a little hard to deal with Thousand Suns fighting on the planet of the Sorcerers. As I said before, they kind of just can teleport around at will. So there's things, you know, tactical squads set down, they start opening fire, and the entire squad of Rubricae just disappear and reappear directly behind them with flamers and things like that. Uh, terrible, terrible place to fight. Uh, and even as they killed all these terrible tentacles and things coming out of the earth itself, uh, they grew back at incredibly rapid speeds. Uh, but the Dark Angels have this stoic, grim resolve and managed to make a pretty good accounting of themselves, uh, and grow and sort of drew out a lot of foes from Tiska. Hooray. Mm-hmm. Um, hooray. And finally, their final stroke of brilliance was to order the Ravenwing and Deathwing into battle. Deathwing teleporters terminating in. Massive blast of firepower, lots of good close combat abilities, while the Ravenwing came down on their own gunships and bikes on the ground, land speeders in the air immediately started doing flanking maneuvers all over the place, sort of taking on these terrible herds of demons and zangors literally everywhere. Um, but Thousand Suns were prepared for this. Uh, one Deathwing squad met the most ignominious end I've ever heard of for a Space Marine Terminator squad, which is... They teleported, and uh, as soon as they were about to hit the ground during teleportation, the ground underneath them disappeared, replaced magically with an infinitely deep chasm. And uh, <laughs> some some say they are falling to, to this day. <laughs> they, yeah, it's, it's a magically created bottomless chasm. They just fell in. There's no way they're getting out, but they might still be down there somewhere in the planet of the sorcerers. <laughs> um, <laughs> 
And, you know, Ravenwing bikers pursuing Zangors found themselves teleported directly into melee combat with Terminators. Uh, so, <laughs> it's, uh, they got powerful reinforcements, but again, Thousand Suns are on their home turf and have the severe home advantage. Uh, a trio of Dark Talons managed to break through and open fire on the, uh, pyramid they were aiming for. Um, they didn't. They're not sure how effective their firepower on it was, but their primary objective was to draw people out of Tiska. They were pretty sure they had, um, they had, uh, done their job, so they began doing a fighting withdrawal to buy time, draw more foes out, and eventually they got the transmission. Mission achieved. Mission accomplished. <laughs> Fall back. Fall back. And so they began falling back. Um, the problem here was most of the Dark Angel forces fell back, and then uh, the Dark Angel librarian got a little whisper in his head saying, why are you falling back? We've been asking for help for 30 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> they had been deceived by a false Vox, uh, false Vox signal. <laughs> Because, of course, they had. <laughs> Amazing. Um, meanwhile, what were the Grey Knights up to to have them in such dire straits? Well, their landing was completely unopposed. Uh, they teleported in as Grey Knights that want to do um, weapons ready to fire into a beautiful round plaza with nine avenues leading off of it. Uh, and there was absolutely no one there. Dark Angels had clearly done their job of drawing Tiska's defenders away. Uh, and, of course... It was super easy for them to tell where they needed to go. They're psychically sensitive. If we look in this direction, we can see the giant beacon of painful psychic energy. So it's obviously over that way. Um, and as they left the plaza, mobs of demons appeared and began attacking. Uh, but, you know, Grey Knights, are, Grey Knights are really good at um, killing demons. There's a lot of them. But uh, Brother Captain Stern's like, well, we can push through. We can do two things at once. We can advance on, advance on the ritual site and also take care of demons. They're pushing on through narrow streets. Um, and uh, with the Terminators leading the way, purgation squads behind them, they're doing pretty well. They're doing pretty well. But the problem here is every time they turned a corner, they walked back into that first plaza. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, this, this, uh, this, this lasted a while. Uh, and, uh, they, they understood that Magnus himself had to be the one sort of obfuscating, uh, their directional ability here, sort of tricking them into walking in this infinite loop. And, um, Stern got all the associated Grey Knights librarians together and they said, we can probably break this particular hex, but it will absolutely attract every demon in the vicinity. <laughs> <laughs> and Captain Stern says, "Yeah, uh, cool, sure, do it. We need to do this. This is this is of the utmost importance." Um, the librarians formed a circle, began the ritual to break this hex, and in between them, a blinding warp portal opened. Out comes Caldor Drago, hero oh, of no. the Imperium. Yeah, with his big Titan sword aloft, uh, saying something, but no one can really hear what he's saying. Uh, but Magnus's spells lift, and this beautiful plaza they've been in is actually this terrible ruined citadel. Um, who knew? Illusions, hey? Pretty hey. terrible. Mm. Yeah. Um, but now they could finally get where they were going. Uh, but now they could actually get where they're going. Uh, they were being, uh, put under very heavy attack instead of just like some distraction demons. They were meeting the full force of the Thousand Suns and their cultists. Um, they were sort of fighting these running battles through the, through the streets. And despite the Dark Angel's efforts in sort of draining the city of defenders, the enemy numbers were immense. 
uh, with lots of the Grey Knights sort of muttering to each other of how unreliable the Dark Angels had been, implying that they thought they weren't even carrying out their mission at all. They probably just left us here to die. What are we doing? Yada, yada, yada. Uh, at which point, Brother Captain Stone goes, okay, we do need numbers. Let's call the Dark Angels in. And for half an hour or so, they made Vox call after Vox call, getting the busy tone every time, obviously. Um, <laughs> Pick up your damn phone. <laughs> Pick up your phone. Um, <laughs> and of course, with a wor- on a world like this, psychic communication is nearly impossible until they identified an area that might be some kind of psychic amplifier. Uh, it was a little out of the way, but they sort of redirected themselves uh, and sort of got going. It was pretty heavily defended. Dread Knights were fighting greater demons. Uh, Grey Knights with personal teleporters were teleporting around Rubricade Marines who were teleporting around them and sort of doing the back and forth teleporter fight, <laughs> just like one of our animes, but with Space Marines. Um, <laughs> uh, it was, uh, it was pretty, pretty brutal fighting, especially because the pyramid itself was held by a Thousand Sun Sorcerer guarded by a cadre of Sekhmet Terminators. Um, but leading squad of Paladin, Stern made it into combat with his terrible demon sword that he carries because again he's a total badass and has a demon sword even though he's true, a gray knight I true that. uh finally he managed to behead the sorcerer and with this amplifier secured the gray knight librarians tapped into it to communicate with the dark angels librarians and finally managed to reach through and uh found out that the uh dark angels were leaving because they thought they had one <laughs> <laughs> i love that yeah, uh, Stern was not happy. Um, the Grey Knights librarians suggested to the Dark Angels librarians to link their minds to form a temporary corridor through the warp large enough for the Dark Angels' heavy vehicles to drive through. Such an effort would kill all of them, but it would get the Dark Angels' forces to them, and they really needed their help because, again, key key objective here is disrupt the ritual. They haven't even gotten close to it yet. <laughs> um... <laughs> Stern and Lazarus agreed, and all the uh, all the Dark Angels and Grey Knights librarians were killed to create this little warp corridor for the Dark Angels to drive their <laughs> tanks and gunships through. Fun times. But, with their forces combined, uh, they still had a terrible, terrible time of it. <laughs> <laughs> there's a shocker. <laughs> yeah, there's a shocker. Brutal close-quarters city fights against ancient Tizkin soldiery. You know, it's pretty rough. Uh, and of course, the closer they got to the ritual, every psyker amongst them felt this deep throbbing pain within their skulls. And even the dark angels who were not psychers themselves began to feel the strain of just the energy pouring off of this ritual. Uh, they were beset by every possible kind of illusion, hex and spell to try and ward them off. Um, and of course, the gray knights stopped as many of they could, many as they could. But the sheer number of spells being cast at them caused many to break through. Lots of smites happening. Essentially, <laughs> uh, we get Stern and Lazarus fighting back to back until they finally reach the ritual site. Magnus conductors is conducting this malign ceremony on top of this ornately carved dais with an entourage of sorcerers around him in this massive, multiple football field-sized plaza where these countless thousands of cultists cheer in adoration as so many <laughs> sacrificial victims are poured in, uh, sort of poured into this pit that the heat of their dying bodies is like doing that, uh, that haze in the air. Like this, this column of heat just 
pouring off these dead bodies. The priests doing the sacrifices have these piles of discarded knives that have gotten too blunt from cutting people's throats. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's it's a terrible, awful chaos ritual. Um, and simply fighting through this would be too difficult. There's too many of them. It's too far a distance. Instead, says Lazarus, everyone open fire on Magnus. If we can kill him, surely we would win. Unfortunately, Magnus has a three-plus invulnerable, so... Yeah, they didn't factor that in, did they? (laughs) Yeah, really didn't factor that one in. Uh, He was completely unaffected, as were all the sorcerers who were under his direct protection there. Uh, So, it's back to good old close combat, as they have to literally just walk through this mass of nascent psycho-cultist humanity, through all these thousand sun sorcerers, the gunships also pushing through and doing strafing runs in ferocious aerial battles to get rid of winged demons and demon engines. Brother after brother falling, Captain Stern knew there was nothing they could do apart from an orbital bombardment, so he had ordered all of the remaining aircraft to withdraw. Uh, Stern and his remaining Grey Knight warriors combining themselves with Caldor Drago's immense psychic presence act as a beacon for their strike cruisers, lance batteries, and macro cannons sort of coming together, much like in uh, Faith and Fury, actually, with the priests coming together to pray to make a psychic beacon. You have Grey Knights coming together to make a psychic beacon. And uh, Caldor Drago himself reached out and took control of the minds of the gunnery, office on board, gunnery officer on board to order them to open fire. At which point, the Purging Sword unleashed salvos of macro cannons and las, and, uh, las lances. Um, of course... These high-level space fight munitions travel incredibly quickly, so Magnus only had time for a personal barrier. Couldn't shield everyone, unfortunately. <laughs> um, and tens of thousands were instantly annihilated. Not a single sacrificial victim remaining, nor any of the thousand sun sorcerers. Countless mortal followers reduced to dust. Scores of space marines knocked prone by the blast and dying of terrible, severe internal hemorrhages. No. Uh, battle tanks getting flipped. You know, aircraft just blown out of the sky. Uh, the gun, sh- the few remaining gunships that weren't destroyed sort of rushed down, picked up survivors, and they had to evacuate as quickly as possible. But a lot of survivors didn't have a chance to board a gunship. Some had been thrown too far away by the blast. Others had been launched into seas of enemies or trapped upside down in their vehicles. Uh, so a small number of Dark Angels and Grey Knights stood together to cover the retreating warriors, selling their lives to buy time. Gunships having no choice but to leave them behind, as Stern, Lazarus, and Drago, with a handful of others, managed to escape, thinking, Dear God Emperor, what will happen to those we have left on the planet of the Sorceress? Oh. Uh, and that that's where it cuts off. Terrible fate for them, I'm sure. <laughs> oh dear for them. <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> oh, that was good times. Good times mm. had by all. But, oh uh, yeah. How about, rather than good times, have greater times. Have the greater good. Let's switch over to the Tau and see what they've been up to in this psychic awakening. Right, let's talk about the fifth sphere. Uh, Right, so the Tau received news from a probe that the fourth sphere had survivors, which in turn kicked off the fifth sphere uh, to basically bring those survivors back to the Empire. (laughs) Yeah. sort of makes sense. <laughs> um, so the fourth had been basically through hell and back, 
you know, untold horrors, massacres while dealing with mm. other factions. And basically there's only about a quarter of them left in the end. Uh, these survivors, you know, barely said a word, you know, do the shock and terror they'd suffered. But also they were a bit concerned at the amount of non-tau that the fifth had. So mm. there's a bit of, uh, you know, a bit of uh, shenanigans going on there between them. So whilst the questions hung in the air, you know, Commander Shadow Sun wasted no time getting the fifth into action, you know, dealing with, mm. you know, orc pirates, Tyranids, tendrils, taking advantage of isolated Imperial worlds, thanks to what they called the Devourer of Hope, which to you and I would be the Great Rift. Yeah, again, another yeah. name for it. <laughs> the, um, the fourth took great delight in massacring the humans with such examples as the slaughter at Salco and other such atrocities. Uh, you had some commanders had to suffer what's known as the Maklar ritual, uh, which is basically for causing unnecessary brutality. Um, but colonies were still set up regardless of this. So switch months later, we go to the Nemyar Atoll, which is basically the area that was originally colonized by the fourth. Uh, so it came under attack by these, Oh, these foul looking Imperial ships or space Marines that mm. carry plague and scythe. Oh, it's oh. so smelly around here. But oh. the Tau responded quickly to the Death Guard invasion, uh, basically taking down their resilient ships with you know, heavy firepower. But this didn't stop them boarding their stations and craft. And then, mm. to the horror, the Tau realized that they weren't resistant to the plague, and reports of Tau commanders' self-destructing positions to stop the spread were commonplace. Oh dear, nasty times. So Shadow Sun was told of the situation and reacted immediately using the info given to work out, yes, it was indeed the Death Guard and more importantly, could not be allowed to enter the Tau Empire. So mm. she broke her forces down into smaller focused parts to basically perform different tasks. Uh, one to like bait the Death Guard, one to reclaim stations, etc. So basically to do enough to in turn break apart the Death Guard fleet. So this worked to a degree, but the death toll on both sides was large, as you'd imagine. And some, unfortunately for the town, some Death Guard ships managed to get through to the Star Tide Nexus. In a rare moment, you know, Shadow Sun was hit by doubt and you know, sent word to the Empire via a messenger drone uh, to basically warn them in case she failed. So as the Death Guard ships uh, went into what's known as, as I said, the Star Tide Nexus, these those remaining you know, decided to immediately withdraw via a warp jump. So, you know, so these Death Guard have gone into the Nexus, but then the rest of them have just disappeared for no real reason. So as mm. the defenders of the Nexus, which is now known as the, the Zone of Silence, uh, after getting, the, you know, after obviously being told of the uh, un- incoming Death Guard ranks to that drone, mm. uh, they, they were waiting for the, these Death Guard interlopers, but none came. So for months they waited sort of for an attack that doesn't seem to be coming, uh, which was sort of basically creating a tension worse than the fight itself. Why the Death Guard had performed this plan was lost in the tower, who, you know, in sort of in turn analyzed the data, you know, put it in a Google Doc and um, kept waiting uh, for nothing that was actually happening. Um, so <laughs> there's uh, another uh, area of conflict, which is the in the uh, the Kalnath expanse. So basically, there's lots of infighting, rebellions across multiple Imperial worlds. Um, so basically for the time, bringing this place in and its people into the greater good was going to be a bit of a challenge. So in recent mm-hmm. times to that, the humans here had been suffering. Great Rift, Tau Invasions, uh, yeah. Gene Stealer Cult, Uprisings, uh, you know, that sort of thing. You know, lots of mutations, witchery. You had councils trying to work out basically where to point the finger of blame. It was all, all going off. Uh, so basically some of the Imperium 
forces there basically remain strong, uh, despite the Tau versus Gene Steeler cults versus Astra Militarum wars that seem to be happening on all these different worlds. Mm. So the Tau were basically using their usual tactic, which is convincing those humans susceptible with, you know, with the greatness of the greater mm. good, uh, basically whilst supporting, uh, you know, various cells in that as well. So, however, the Gene Steeler cults were, a bit of an unexpected factor in all this and ultimately we're going to be a problem. Uh, so, yeah. uh, you know, and once the earth cast had come to terms with, with the fact that humans and Tyranids had been combined, uh, they realized this threat was very real basically. So they aim to take advantage of the chaos between the Imperium and the gene stealer cults by, uh, but, but we end up being surprised again, uh, because basically there was reports of miracles uh, being performed by imperial priests coming from the uh, Guevessa uh, auxiliaries, uh, even themselves responsible for a violent outburst. So they're like, what is going on? Uh, but not, it wasn't just the tower. The gene stealers were having the uh, gene stealer cults were having their own issues. Uh, the coming of the star children would arrive in shadow and silence, and as per their scriptures, mm. anyway. Uh, but the increased number of human psychers and, and magi being born suggested that their deity was sort of displeased basically so a battle of faith seemed to be happening at this point so you've got the the imperials clinging to their dogma you've got the tau spray spread in the greater good and so you've got this gene steer cults sort of creating their own cults devoted to the star children to basically in turn prove themselves and basically use this sort of these increased magi as you know, weapons basically so in in return the ministorum sent out priests to spread the word of the emperor uh in you know basically show that the faith in him would save the, those you know from all the way down on the factory floor all the way up to you know the governor of a planet basically mm. right so uh, let's talk about the raising of Ast- uh, astagorius uh which is known as Keval, or sorry, Kesval to the uh, Tau. So basically, this particular planet is of great architecture, wealth, amongst various other things. Uh, Shadow Sun decided to come here uh, when they basically outright rejected the Tau's greater good. And I love the way they did this. They basically rejected them, uh, and the meaning of rejecting them is the way of sending severed heads of the Tau delegation backed in five different chests, one for each cast. Um, and so not only was that a bit of an insult, it also actually showed they knew the difference between the different casts. They still mm. listened to the Tau and yet they still decided to murder them. So Shadow Sun <laughs> obviously wanted revenge for doing yeah. such a thing. So, but while the people at the top rejected the Tau, obviously some didn't, uh, hundreds of smaller gatherings and agreements were being made between humans and Tau, uh, as the, basically the planet's hierarchy was sort of a front for a lot of weakness really you know it's all all a front so families would agree to support the tau for favor basically when the tau eventually took the planet so tau troops were targeting specific locations to take out human you know mm. human rivals of these families and most importantly data was constantly being gathered uh, including quite disturbing information such as serpent like graffiti in the tunnels and creatures with multiple limbs being spotted so mm. shadow stun Took her time uh, before assaulting the world, uh, the world, uh, making you know sure to do it at the right time, sort of letting the discord grow and, and make you know eventually making the planet weaker. So basically, when the Tau came to attack, civil war was already about to break out on the planet. Basically, uh, despite the Xenos threat, which you know really should have brought the people together, but it wasn't. So those wanting to resist the Tau basically ready themselves. The huge cathedral cities open up their defences and weapons such as like these, you know, these, these massive 
like stained glass windows that were part of a church slide back and aircraft hangers appear. It's, it's amazing. I've just got this lovely image. It's all this scenic churches and then they all turn into sort of defense mm. platforms, basically. <laughs> so the, uh, the Tau stayed away from these defenses, obviously, uh, deciding to deploy sort of swiftly to those areas with human supporters or huge open areas out in the wild, you know, get them away from these defenses. So you've got hammer, hammerheads fighting Lehman Russes, Crute, you know, taking out human soldiers in, fortified locations the war was you know getting into a full swing basically so the ultimate aim for shadow sun was to use hit and run tactics to make the the imperium forces uh, submit but as expected that surrender was not going to happen so the imperial forces were sort of ba- basically heavily resistant and even reports of miracles and other explained events uh, which tau data could not account for it was sort of blowing their minds mm-hmm. um happened such as like blinding lights you know forcing back the Tau while the human soldier charged um there are even reports of the guevessa turning on the Tau too it was really unsettling times for them so these moments of insanity were happening in the Tau ranks you got the Tau with the Tau having seen them before uh after the great rift had appeared uh basically usually affecting humans and non-Tau xenos but cover-ups seemed to be made when Tau spoke of aliens stepping out of human corpses and even when the Tau of the fourth sphere uh was seen killing human prisoners that had converted to the greater good so yeah they were sort of starting mm. to realize that you know they could put their heads in the sand no longer really so yeah. shadow sun needed to find a weakness to turn the tide with the the resistance thanks to their faith the most dogged she'd ever seen by the imperials so with the data suggesting areas of religious importance were held in such high regard she basically knew what her next target would be which would be the greatest cathedral city which is called uh elixor magna uh which would basically break their morale as tau propaganda bled from the speakers so Tau forces surrounded and battered the city defences with orders given to the various humans that the idea was that escape may be possible, you know, um, or sorry, shouldn't be, you know, like oh, you would, there's not going to be a fight to the death. You, you could get out potentially, uh, yeah. but secretly troops were in the pl- were in place to take them out, which is quite a nasty thing to do, uh, sort of giving them a bit of false hope. So um, mm. in turn, they hacked human comms. Uh, offered them surrender, food and drink, maybe a beverage or two, uh, but obviously none, none obliged to this, to this welcome. So the Tau forces sort of infiltrated the city uh, and basically, to their surprise, managed to take out the first couple of kilometers with ease because basically the humans had abandoned it. Uh, Shadow Sun could smell the trap, but was looking forward to seeing what the humans were going to try. But she had underestimated them. So ceilings were torn oh. away. Oh, I know. With defenders <laughs> throwing down explosives, killing hundreds of fire warriors. You had trap doors that were so large, uh, storm surges fell through them. Uh, and they were mm. ripped apart by zealots and heavy weapons down there. It was basically a war of guerrilla tactics, and it went on for months. Mm. Uh, the humans obviously were using the knowledge of their city to take out the Tau, but then the Tau started fighting back a bit because obviously they started understanding the layout of the city, uh, and they would often bait the humans by attacking their religious locations. And um, basically, Shadow Sun hoped that by slowly taking them down, surrender would come. But yet again, it didn't come. So in addition, she had to draw withdraw all Great Vasa uh, forces due to their unusual behaviour to the point where they're even taking great delight in torturing the defenders, wearing their teeth in some cases. Very bizarre things going on. Mm. So despite these issues, the Tau were managing to claim you know more zones day by day until there's like a final breakout attack by the humans. You know, tank companies, thousands of troops all rushed the Tau forces, taking them by surprise. And ultimate, you know, and almost overwhelming them. Uh, luckily, the discipline 
of the rapid response cadres, which is like basically their battle suits and fire warriors and devilfish, uh, basically dealt with them, breaking the resolve of obviously the humans that were quite hungry and withered by now because obviously they've been fighting for months. Yeah. Uh, obviously, this win was broadcast across the planet by the tie with the water cast preparing their victory species, uh, speeches. But guess what? It wasn't going to be that simple. The humans you know, mm. carried on fighting, you know, gathered some resolve as they saw their spires fall with Shadow Sun uh, sort of sad that, that even more blood needed to be spilt, you know, because of they, you know, these humans that just won't give in. So, you know, there's mm. this lovely scene where she's basically walking around the hospital ships uh, sort of as thousands of Tau were injured, maimed or driven mad, you know, where she's sort of like slow motion, I can imagine a slow motion walking through all this. Um, basically every ship, could have about 5,000 at a time, but all of them were overpopulated and, and with so many dead, you know, were being shot out, you know, out of the airlocks, basically. Um, but Shadow Sun knew that despite the losses, you know, the dead, you know, would, wouldn't be resentful. It was all for the greater good as the battle raged on. Right. So let's switch over to the Hayfoss containment. So basically this particular area was a, basically a mining world. Uh, it was sort of very densely populated, responsible for producing like Promethean and other materials in very large quantities. So the, the population mm-hmm. suffered uh, with the emergence of the Great Rift. Many of its people, you know, turned into firebrands and demagogues for uh, assurance. Um, but adding to this, a cult under the banner of the One-Eyed Liege uh, was harassing mm-hmm. the planetary defences. Um, and, and and other ones such as like the followers of the great monarch there was quite a few cults that seemed to to appear basically so mm. uh more carnage occurred across the world sorcery and witchcraft being rumored the cause of all these freak events the black ships of the astro telepathica uh leaving them with you know uh, had left them with lots of thousands of dangerous psychers which you know in turn uh were rooting around the the planet's fortunes um and yeah i think it was just getting absolutely crazy so uh so gov- in steps the governor mm-hmm. uh bargaining with them to root out like rogue witches in exchange for freedom so basically all these psychers were given jobs because <laughs> they were like well we've got lots of psychers <laughs> here let's put them to use let's find out these witches that are doing stuff basically so this plan initially proved successful uh being used to wipe out like the followers of the red monarch and other cults and and you had like the Kachan 99th land sharks getting involved. Uh, and even what's really cool, you got the uh, Hisphosian Tritons, which are basically combat aquanauts. Uh, so you've got these underwater fights. Uh, it's happened, Cameron. Underwater Astra Militarum. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, yeah. it's a thing. <laughs> so uh, riding on the coattails of this success, the governor believed victory over, the, over a mutant colony uh, between one of the subcontinents was going to happen. So, you know, regiments from the planet and others from nearby systems all grouped together. Uh, and so what they did is they smashed through the mutants with armored tanks, heavy bolters and the like. Uh, but the numbers were mounting as in the mutants had a lot of them. So they were using the narrow tunnels to sort of wipe out guardsmen and you know, take advantage of, of where the tanks can go basically. So again, massive breakout fight. Um, mm. but, um, but the ferocity of the mutants fighting was sort of really unmatched and they sort of realized there had to be a reason for this. They're fighting really, you know, really for you know, with a lot of ferocity. So the answer mm. was uh, they were fleeing from a threat greater than the Imperial forces, basically a new collection of cults who had managed to weaponize mining vehicles and, uh, Achilles Ridge runners to take down their enemies. Mm. So basically this new threat caught the Astra Militarum completely off guard, uh, and began to take its toll. Uh, on their ranks mm. as their forces were outflanked by 
you know, Atalan jackals and clawed by warriors with multiple limbs in mining gear. So it was all it was all mm-hmm. kicking off. But um, some parts of the Imperials were able to take stock and fight back. Like you had the the famous Bastion Breakers, Lehman Rust Demolisher Company, you know, charging into rock grinders. You know, losing its crew, but you know, ultimately helping the fight. Um, and then you basically it came to the point where the governor ordered a retreat rather than a pursuit because believing that the enemy had been so shaken they would never return. So imagine all these mutants, you know, from this colony had run away and they're like, Yep, yeah, that's it, leave them, don't worry, they're not coming back. But guess what? <laughs> they came back. Um and, <laughs> and uh but and also with two common themes as well. A they were using civilian vehicles with weapons and also they were targeting the spaceports, particularly uh Electrio, uh which is known as the largest one. Uh so basically the reason was simple. They wanted to escape and the governor could not let that happen. Uh the space the you know the largest space port was absolutely huge. So it was like the size of a city, you know, with with ships of all sizes, you know, admec, workers, warehouses, all all sorts, and it basically turned into a war ground. You know, we're fighting against gene stealer cults using uh, guerrilla tactics and the like. You know, setting down traps and mines. But the Imperials were able to fight back. You know, using their wealth of the wealth of the planet, because obviously they had a lot of troops there. They had firepower, uh, and basically, you know, trying to lure the gene stealer cults into like an open warfare. You know, using pincer tactics, mm. uh, all sorts. It was going backwards and forwards for months, basically. Uh, even with even some Imperials turning on their fellow soldiers, but the cultists were becoming, you know, more and more hard pressed. So victory was declared, you know, despite minor battles uh, after the spaceport was in ruins, but the governor remained hopeful, you know, basically with all the other spaceports still running and the usual, because obviously, because what basically she was sort of concerned with the, the, the tithe basically for, because obviously they've been cut off from the pyramid for a long time, but they realized that, you know, if they came calling, they may want their tithe. So we need to be ready for it, basically. Um, you know, once obviously contact was reestablished. Uh, but then, guess what? A Tau fleet arrived. Uh, the Tau tried to convince the governor to form an alliance with them to deal with the Gene Steeler cults. And she was tempted. But then she received news, news of battle suits killing both Gene Steeler cults and Imperial forces. Uh, so she met, mm. she basically slapped back the outstretched hand from the uh, tower and decided to fight on. So that was that, right? Uh, I'll finish up with the Volotherian uprising. So this involves the pauper princes. We've heard of them before. So the pauper princes uh, had inhabited the lower parts of the hive cities here, uh, basically waiting for their time to rise, but ultimately had 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 their hand forced. So basically the opposition had been what's known as the oppressors. Basically these were the, the ruling elite uh, you know, who basically preached a lot as well. So with the Tau arriving, the pauper princes had to react before the oppressors were killed, uh, as basically they'd been spending years trying to infiltrate them. So they couldn't let the Tau wipe them out. So the answer was to basically take control of the of the planet uh, in praise, obviously, of the Star Children. So despite the work that they'd done prior, the new cult with their greater good was actually quite turning heads uh, so much so that the, basically the pauper princes saw the Tau as actually quite a real threat to their power and their planning. Uh, so basically with the, with the oppressors sort of caught in the middle of these two Xenos factions trying to, you know, one sort of covertly trying to take them over and the other one obviously with the greater good trying to actively, you know, take them over. So they were sort of, like I said, caught in the middle. So ultimately the pauper princes won this sort of political situation using their influence and abnormal amount of, uh, 
of uh, power to basically convince councils and meetings uh, to use their more, you know, and also using uh, more enhanced psychic power to turn away the Tau. So during this time, the pauper princes started their preparations for war. So you've got aberrants forming, uh, thanks to implantation by their biophaguses. Uh, you've got stories of assassinations, thanks to sanctuses. Uh, all sorts was going on. So whilst this was happening, the pauper princes noticed that the Tau Creed was ironically very similar to theirs. But they mm. used this to bring others under their teaching, uh, advising that basically the, the Tau Va was in fact the star children. So they sort of tried to basically uh. manipulate the situation. So using tales of prophecy or maybe even a gene stealer's kiss to bring them into the fold, uh, the numbers kept increasing. But obviously the Tau were like, we don't know what's going on here. So <laughs> upon basically upon rejection, the, the Tau targeted the principal hive uh known as zemerus but basically they they using they use sort of the ones converted to the greater good to obviously help support them but unfortunately for them the support being expected by the cadres turned out to be actually followers of the star children because again they hadn't mm. known that the the pauper princes have been doing this behind the scenes so yeah. their gunships were taken out taken out of the sky by gun batteries and you know were ambushed by their transport um luckily the tower of the fourth uh sphere uh had little regard for humans so they sort of <laughs> hunkered down and fought back regardless whereas the uh the fifth seemed to sort of struggle because obviously they're a bit more um you know willing of humans so the poor mm. princes have basically now obviously revealed their hand to both the tau and the oppressors uh all over the city various you know imperial regiments were fighting each other as the infiltration took hold the the underhive and, and and ultimately all layers of the hive itself are involved in a war and basically tearing itself apart uh the fight mm. even came to the great garden of Svivax, which is basically this lovely beautiful mm. landscape which had been untouched thanks to uh ancient tech which had, was now actually turned into a war zone um yeah as the uh the vehicles of the iron worm uh iron worm earth eaters basically fought the armor of the Savixian uh honored uh with heavy losses on both sides and even the land as it turned into basically a quagmire thanks to sort of destroyed waste pipes Mm-mm. so but the tau still had their say in things they were fighting the you know the pauper princes where they're you know using adaptable tactics fighting side by side with the imperial defenders despite their rejection but the main goal for the pauper princes was the generator the genitorium in the city so with the presses having power over the power um then they basically cut off the supply to certain areas that were controlled by the pauper princes and obviously stopped millions of their followers being killed so as you would imagine this area of furnaces and turbines and reactors uh had some of the best defenders on the planet obviously due to its importance so the pauper princes used distraction methods to confuse and overload the defenses using you know, cultists and captured Lehman Russes to bombard from all directions and ultimately isolate the area and an outcome, pure strange gene stealers attacking from the tunnels. Yay. So yay, mm-hmm. just what we need. Um, and then the primacies sort of commanded that the genitorium uh, must be kept undamaged because obviously they didn't want to blow it up because obviously that's no good to anyone, really. So yeah. with the fear that the self-control protocols may be used, the pauper princes basically infiltrated human workers who would then turn on their colleagues, stab them in the back, and then basically let through like sanctuses and, and the Kellermorph into the area as well. Mm. So, you know, Imperials were turning against each other. Uh, and so eventually they did take down the, uh, or they, sorry, say take control of the genitorium, uh, showing basically that they could do, you know, what they could do when many limbs of their factions all sort of combined to mm. do 
uh, one thing. Uh, basically, this led to the taking of the Hive City uh, shortly afterwards, and obviously was a very good victory for him. Uh, and obviously, yeah. ultimately, you know, the final bit of this is that the the, the Hive uh, was in a bit in planet was in a bit of a weird state because you've got Tau cities or well, Hive cities under the control of Tau. You've got some under the control of the Imperiums and some under the control of the the pauper princes as well. So, yeah, it's a very divided uh, planet at the end there. <laughs> yeah, jeez. <laughs> so, yeah, that was that. Well, continuing on, it's orcs, 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 It's time for Saga of the Beast. Yes. Now, I have to preface this with Saga of the Beast was very hyped up about a very big showdown between Ragnar, Blackmane, and Gazgul Mag, Uruk, Thraka, the Iron Orc. The Grand Overlord, leader of all our kind, leader of the Great War. Um, that's got like two sentences dedicated to it in this. <laughs> uh, it's not even in the direct law section. Um, that is shocking. Yeah. Uh, so I'll summarize it here. Um, Ragnar Blackmane caught up to Gaskell. He fought him. Ragnar was so terribly injured that the only way to save his life was to put him through the Rubicon Pimeris. Gaskell was beheaded. And then Doc Grotznik did a massive, like, continent-wide Frankenstein thing with a warp storm the size of a continent to uh, bring him back to life. <laughs> and they both came back to life more powerful than ever. That's literally all the information we get about that. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, instead, most of this one focuses on the p- galaxy-spanning crusade of the Space Wolves against the Orcs, uh, because... Uh, every Psychic Awakening comes with a map of what's going on. Mm-hmm. And the map for the Greenskin Threat covers more of the galaxy than the Warp Rifts of the Cicatrix Maledictum, the Eye of Terror, and every other Warp Rift combined. Like, without question. Mm. Like, a solid 50-60% to 60% of the galaxy is green on this map. <laughs> um, as it should be. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Turns out orcs, orcs are a massive, massive threat. Um, who'd have thunk? Who'd have thunk? Um, so, speaking of different names for the uh, for the Great Rift, how about Gork's Grin? That's the best. Uh, they it's win. the best one. They win. <laughs> um, I love that they just think it's God's mouth finally coming to eat the galaxy. <laughs> um, now... All these orcs across the galaxy watched these teeming hordes of demons and heretic Astartes spilling out of Gork's grin, and the cleverest among them began to have thoughts. If if thing come out of Gork's grin, maybe maybe orcs can go into Gork's grin. Yep, sign logic. Oh, lots of big think. Um, <laughs> and so. Countless greenskin fleets plunged themselves directly into the Great Rift because that looked like a great time to them. Again, compared to almost every other faction, the Orcs have 100% only benefited from the Psychic Awakening stuff <laughs> in terms of law. Every other faction, terrible time for everyone involved. Orcs, loving it. Um, <laughs> a lot of the Orcs that flew into uh, into the Great Rift were never seen again, but... The vast majority of them were spat out into fights of a scale that they had never even dreamed possible. Um, the few orcs smart enough to comp- contemplate every anything besides this potential joy coming from greater violence uh, felt Gork smiling on them and saying, Yeah, boys, you're doing good. Here's your reward. <laughs> um, <laughs> 
And so, as a result of this, Orc attacks on the Imperium increased massively in their frequency and intensity. Space Hulks all over the place. Wars, there's one on every corner. Uh, <laughs> Imperial <laughs> fleets dropping randomly out of warp, or warp space to find themselves in the middle of an Orc armada. Happens every week. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, humans aren't the only species getting their psychic powers buffed to the supreme by the appearance of the Great Rift. Uh, weird boys are just showing up. They're all over the place. Warp heads, the more powerful weird boys... They're, they're all over the place as well. Like, uh, the psychic potential of the orcs, which is already massive compared to many other species, has been heightened time and time again by this to the point where certain weird boys are capable now of teleporting entire armies at once with the power of their minds. Uh, so imagine if you're fighting a horde of 10 million orcs and it just disappears and shows up on the other side of the planet. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, Gaskell? takes advantage of this. He leads his great war in earnest, and warlord after warlord submit to his will or are crushed by his claw. On the other on the other side of the ring, the Space Wolves. Space Wolves. Um, space Wolves. The Rune Priests aren't having a good time, because as much as they insist they aren't psychers, they are, and everyone knows <laughs> it. <laughs> um, <laughs> Stop kidding yourself. You know, Spirit of Fenris, my ass, honestly. Um, <laughs> uh, their minds are ravaged by visions of pain and death on unimaginable scales, uh, some being terrible nightmares, but others tangible th- prophecies of dire threats, uh, corroborated by more uh, more reliable means of divining the future, like the tarot and rune casting and battlefield intelligence. I love that these are all grouped together as the same <laughs> level of trustworthiness. Um, <laughs> Uh, the various great companies leapt from war to war based on these visions, many glorious sagas being born and expanded, and many more being brought to heroic ends. Uh, a large number of the Space Wolves believed that this might even be the wolf time, and were hoping that Lehman Russ would rejoin them soon. Um, but most of the visions that the Rune Priests were having involved a great green flame spreading amongst the stars. Sparks and moats whirled around it, but instead of floating away like normal sparks from a fire where they were drawn in towards it. Uh, discussing the meaning of this vision, they all came to the same conclusion. Orcs, together, strong. Uh, orcs are becoming more united. Um, and they all agreed, of course, that this was not good news. Uh, and so the Space Wolves reached out to the Death Watch and the Inquisition. And uh, the Death Watch and the Inquisition said, oh yeah, hey, Gaskell is just kind of rampaging across the entire galaxy on an all-star orc tour. Um, and the Space Wolves mustered. They could only take with them those whose resolve was beyond question. First, they approached the Death Watch, who said, well, we would love to join you, but if you would note, there are less of us than there are of a regular chapter of Marines. And there are so many Xenos everywhere, as evidenced by The Greater Good and other books. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, all the watch stations combined did not have the resources necessary to even significantly in any way aid the Space Wolves in challenging this massive war. Um, and uh, so instead, some other chapters pledged their help. Uh, notably the Dragon Spears, who had oaths of brotherhood with the Space Wolves, and the Night Raptors, who just completely hate orcs to the depths of their hearts. <laughs> um, 
Logan Grimnar gathered all the Wolf Lords together to discuss the escalating threat, and they poured over the stellar charts, showing the movements of the various greenskin hordes, knowing that unless you could kill Gazkul, the Great War would never end. But his location was unconfirmed. Uh, the warriors of Fenris would slow the greenskins' movements, and doing so would prevent the Great War from growing too quickly, and thus they could probably save the worlds in its path. Uh, while other space wolves hunted down Gazkul himself. Every wolf lord was tasked with providing warriors to fight, dispatching the great companies to widespread locations, literally all across the galaxy, and so the space wolves set off. Go wolves! Go wolves! So, we start with Eric Morkai and his great company. They made their way to the mountainous jungle world of Shebal, um, the planet was home to the Obsidian Jaguars chapter. Noble warriors, stout of heart and strong of arm. Um, unfortunately, <laughs> unfortunately, the planet was covered with the wrecks of Adeptus Astartes warships in the colours <laughs> of the uh, Obsidian Jaguars because the Orc fleet of the Goths had already been here. Oh. Uh, yeah. Morkai desired nothing more than vengeance, knowing that his great company was not large enough to retake the world on its own, but resolved to strike hard, reasoning that they might still be able to save the Obsidian Jaguar's gene seed stores, at the very least. Uh, the Black Mains and the bulk of Morkai's gunships and armors would distract the orcs, draw them away from the Obsidian Jaguar's fortress monastery, and at the same time, the sons of Morkai would infiltrate, get any remaining gene seed, and destroy the generatorium to detonate the entire structure and kill lots of orcs. As you do. Um, <laughs> and it begins. Uh, the orcs are suitably distracted by someone to fight. Lovely. Uh, and Eric Morkai, along with many packs of wolf scouts, infiltrators, and incursors, slipped through service and refuse tunnels into the Saber, which is the fortress monastery, cutting down any greenskins they come across as quietly as possible, hiding the bodies where they can, and making swiftly for their targets, one detachment going to the Generatorum and the other to the Gene Seed Vaults. Uh, the orcs had uh, completely desecrated the place, as they are wont to do, um, and the space wolves, while time was of the essence, did take the time to pull down all the space marines nailed to the walls and put them in slightly more respectable positions. Because uh, orcs are lovely people, really. Um, <laughs> <laughs> however, inevitably they were discovered. There's too many orcs for them not to be noticed eventually. Uh, and it became a running battle throughout the interior of a fortress monastery. These massive orcs wrestling uh, with the space wolves where they could, bludgeoning them to death with clubs or cleaving them with axes. Uh, as the space wolves essentially played a game of Pac-Man here, sort of uh, setting up ambushes, turning corners abruptly, trying to navigate through this horrifically complicated uh, fortress. Because, um, you know, the Space Marines, uh, they don't make their fortresses easy to navigate. Let's, uh, let's put it that way. <laughs> it's for a good reason. Um, yeah. And, yeah. And uh, when the first detachment finally reached the Generatorum, uh, they found it filled to bursting with Orc mechs. Because, of course, it was. Why wouldn't they love to play around with here? Um, of Sons of Rust, <laughs> racing into combat, slew them, every single one, and uh, began planting melter bombs on all the various important bits of the Generatorum. Um, and, unfortunately, the Helix Adepts reported at this point and said the Gene Seed had been ruined beyond recovery. Uh, the mission had never had a point at all. They got the order to withdraw, got out of there with nothing left to accomplish, 
pulled the trigger and watched the explosion from orbit. It did not feel like a victory despite millions of orcs being killed in the blast. We then go halfway across the galaxy to the storming of Lekades. Uh In this case, the Iron Wolves, Sea Wolves, and Death Wolves uh, were tracking down a war of the evil suns. Uh, Lekades is a rad-drenched planet, uh, and the Space Wolves made planet fall there without particular incidents. Lots of Swiftboard bikers churning up the dust as they rumbled into formation along with the Thunderwolf cavalry and other vehicles. And they caught the stench of orc flesh and burning smog on the air. Uh, they could see this huge, rapidly moving cloud of dust in the distance that every now and then was lit with these sporadic flashes of green light. Uh, Inquisitors of the Auto Xenos had led them there. A dozen worlds had already been devastated by these, this immense speed mob racing across the surface of the world here. And the orcs' fury was so strong that the war energy they generated allowed them to teleport their entire mechanized force across vast distances. Um, the Inquisition initially thought these movements were random, but after multiple worlds had been brutally savaged by this teleporting fleet of orc vehicles, um, they finally found a pattern. Every single teleportation moved them closer to Gazkul Thracker's estimated position. Uh, of course, they could not be allowed to reach him. Uh, as deluges of fire nicked and scratched their armors, the Space Wolves raced to carve the mob in two, piercing it like a wild's hide and cutting it apart like a frost axe would sever a head from a body. Uh, but it was a really big mob. Thousands of vehicles stretching over the horizon, laughing and roaring, firing their weapons into the air with glee, making rude gestures as they sped past. Um, just having a good time. You know, orcs, they love what they do. They love their jobs. <laughs> um, and at the very heart of the fortress, uh, of the uh, mob, rather, was this massive battle fortress, bigger than a Baneblade and festooned with lightning, crackling weaponry. Around around this, the tides of the uh, warp flowed and ebbed, and Space Wolves knew it had to be destroyed to break the mob in half. Hugely outnumbered, they knew that speed was essential, so they can strike before the orcs could properly respond. Uh, land raiders and repulsors made up the outside edge of their attack, firing as soon as they came into range with las cannons, causing many explosions, uh, which the orcs love. <laughs> having, a, having a great time. We're driving really fast, we're teleporting around, and now there's lads to fight. Hell yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, behind the protective screen of land raiders and repulsors were the lighter vehicles, bikes, and the thunderwolves. So as this armored wedge pierced the orc column, the faster units were let off their leash and sort of raced with their massive amounts of maneuverability through towards uh, that big battle fortress. <sighs> like a stone thrown into a raging river, uh, the attack did not do a whole lot, though. <laughs> Um, <laughs> that's literally the comparison they make. Uh, there was a moment of initial disruption, after which the Greenskins recovered with terrifying speed and surged back at the Space Wolves, beginning to surround them in this massive sort of race mob, like, bike, car, race, I don't know how to describe this, it's, it's like a Looney Tunes dust-up fight, but with cars <laughs> instead of fists. Uh, <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, uh, the Space Wolves... Uh, decided to turn the orcs against each other by driving directly at them, so the orcs following them would be driving directly into the orcs the space wolves themselves were driving towards. But to the orcs, this only adds to the glorious anarchy. 
battle wagons and killer cans and death copters uh, made their presence well known with many rockets uh, felling many, many walls. Um, and the main thrust of the space walls still made towards that battle fortress. Uh, Rune priests riding the leading land raiders and repulsors um, felt the pain of the psychic energy increasing as they drew closer. Uh, this thing, as they as they got close enough to get a proper beat on it, was an assault on the eyes. Haphazardly welded armor plates over what was probably once a bane blade, but then they stuck like two dozen other vehicles on top of it, and also <laughs> chained twelve weird boys off the sides of it. Uh, <laughs> so imagine it's like the it's like the Mad Max Fury Road thing, but yeah. you've got an orc psyker on a stick. <laughs> with lightning beaming out of his eyes and every now and again just teleporting the thing. Um, a whole bunch of uh, the Space Wolves vehicles were destroyed by weapons fired from the fortress and unfortunately uh, the repulsor carrying the majority of the Rune Priests got a little too close, at which point all of the Rune Priests' head exploded from the overwhelming psychic energy. <laughs> Tactics. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, but, you know, they can still pull through, they can still do it, they can still get it done, and they're bringing the main battle tanks just into range. Those last cannons are ed- edging in, and the second enough weapons got into range, the energy builds to its peak, and the entire orc speed mob disappears teleports literally off the planet to the next planet in the line, <laughs> leaving the space wolves completely beaten and broken. They had completely failed. Um, <laughs> nothing, nothing approaching a victory there. <laughs> oh god, I love See, that. Space that... Marines do lose sometimes. Mm, they do lose sometimes. Um, this this one scenario would make the best Mad Max style movie. Oh, it would absolutely. be great. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. Um, we move over to the purging of Gyvos, where the Space Wolves fight the Blood Axes. Hooray! Um, so the Blood Axes found the riches of the Varia system and decided to take it for themselves and launched an assault on the capital planet Gyvos. The Drake Slayers, Death Wolves, and Firehowlers made straight for it upon uh, having received the call for aid there. The Imperial war effort in that area heavily relied on this system's resources, and Space Wolves' primary mission was to take back Gyvos's biggest Promethean refinery. Once they'd secured the vital supplies, they could relieve the rest of the planet. Finally, itself was the size of a city, with miles of piping, colossal exhaust towers, and vast storage vats, covered in acid rain, sort of eroding the pale grey paint of the Space Wolves' armour. And once they got in, uh, they they tactically cleared it room by room, and all they found were the broken and half-eaten bodies of the human refinery workers. Um, as they finally finished clearing the complex, they, f- they spotted, uh, some, some orcs in camouflage with a symbol paired red axes, uh, on little flags, uh, retreating into the dense polluted forest around the complex. Orcs don't do that. They don't retreat. <laughs> what is this? Um, of course, space wolves being, uh, some would say hot headed, fierce, ferocious, ambitious, determined to strike before the orcs could regroup, charged in. Their cohesion was broken up as they charged into this forest, which quickly gave way to acidic bogs. Uh, as the space walls were lured into harsh vegetation and difficult terrain, mobs of boys um, rushed out of hiding and completely ambushed them. Uh, this, this entire book has like these little half-paragraph saga things interspersed mm. in it. 
all the sagas here end with so ends his saga. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> not a happy ending. <laughs> not a happy ending. Um, the Drake Slayers and Death Wolves followed after the Fire Howlers, following the trail of broken trees, blood, and you know, crushed bodies. Um, Crom Dragon Gaze, leader of the Drake Slayers, had learned valuable lessons from underestimating orcs in the past. He was eager to race ahead and gut them, but instead followed behind the Fenrisian wolves, sniffing out their quarry. Uh, uncovering many hidden ambush points, blood claws and intercessors worked together to cut down concealed orcs with precision fire. Uh, it's not long before they heard the din of clashing blades, booming guns, guttural orc roars, and fierce Fenrisian oaths. The fire howlers, it turned out, were surrounded. Dot of grey amid a sea of black and green, fighting back to back as thousands of orcs surged on them in the big final ambush. Um, Death Wolves and Drake Slayers deployed to sort of pincer the orcs between the two forces and opened up. Uh, it was a, it was a pretty big battle. What can I say? Space Wolves fight hard, orcs fight just as hard, if not harder. Um, and with the Fury Fenris itself, the Space Wolves managed to crush the orcs and, uh, rescue the remaining fire howlers, but at the cost of many, many lives. Um, mm. but they had successfully, they'd successfully, uh, retaken the Promethean Repinery. Uh, and, uh, off they went on their merry way to save the rest of Gyvos. That's the little thing with the blood axes. F- from there, we go <laughs> to the ambush at the Gnarion Reef. Uh, Grimblood's great company was pursuing a massive orc void fleet, uh, of the Death Skulls clan. Uh, and this fleet was impossible to stop for months. The Grimbloods and Imperial Navy Flatiers had fought it, but appeared to do little more than irritate this massive conglomeration of vessels. Uh, there were rocks, there were hijacked Imperial battlecruisers and frigates, there were vessels with solar sails that were identified as Eldari ships, there were sleek engines from the Tau Empire. Whatever their adaptations, they're all painted stem to stern in blue, of course. Uh, every strike the Imperial vessels made was an attempt to distract the orcs away from ship y- from the shipyards in the Evrard system. If the Greenskins managed to grab those uh, those facilities and all the ships within, they would construct even bigger fleets uh, in a frighteningly short amount of time. Uh, alas, to no avail, the orcs would not be dissuaded, and every time they clashed, the Imperial numbers fell, while the Greenskins attracted more ships to their fleet. Uh, at Port Vol, an entire squadron of Imperial Navy battlecruisers was swamped by rampaging orcs who stole the ships for themselves. In the Zagreus Nebula, the strike cruiser favoured of the Old Father and Gladius-class frigate Runehelm were forced to self-destruct to avoid being taken by the enemy. Uh, even reinforcements from the Night Raptors and Dragon Spears chapters failed to lure the orc fleet from its path. They were as spike gnats to a great white bear. Very space wolfy. Um, <laughs> as the Death Skulls Armada drew ever closer, Wolf Lord Kjarl Grimblood declared that his forces would have to meet them head on to spare the system. Uh, he consulted the flames, trying to divine the future, but uh, no option was without terrible risk that would leave dozens of systems vulnerable. But the Imperium can't hold back. To defeat the Orc, it would take everything at their disposal. Their last stand would be at Narion Reef, with lots of asteroids to provide cover, uh, and with a lot of argument, and perhaps the breaking of some heads, uh, Grimblood managed to secure control of every Imperial ship in the system. Uh, even those that remained unfinished were tethered to functioning vessels and towed to the reef to help set up the trap. Uh, and when the Orcs got there, they found a debris field stretching for thousands of miles of all these 
these empty abandoned ships. Oh, the Yumis have left us a treat. Oh, left all this beautiful. good scrap out here. Oh, we'll take it all. Um, but actually, the Space Wolves are being super sneaky and Ooh. have just turned off the power on all of their ships and hidden them as random ships floating through the debris field, <laughs> uh, controlling themselves. Because the first thing the Orcs did whenever they landed on a ship was they would unleash the big buckets of paint, I guess, that they have strapped to the underside of their spaceships and start immediately painting the entire ship blue. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> so that's the first thing they do. Like, even as looter crews are sort of cutting into the hull of the ship to get inside it, the the orcs on the outside are busy painting it and inside the space walls are going, oh, this is an insult to the old father. Ah, oh, ah. Oh. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, finally, once the field of debris was completely full, uh, the space wall ships roared to life, unleashing barrages uh, in a perfect ambush. Dozens of greenskin vessels overwhelmed and blown to pieces by this deluge of fire uh, high-speed ramming courses tore apart kill cruiser after kill cruiser with their plasma generators set to auto-destruct. That's what you do with ships that don't work properly, I guess. <laughs> um, and from nearby, the Adeptus Astartes vessels struck out from behind asteroids at the Orc Rocks and the other larger ships that had, dis- that had deigned not to enter the ambush. Um, Space Wolves, Dragon Spears, and Night Raptors raced to engage the foe as well. It was crucial for the Imperial fleet to inflict as much damage as possible before uh, the element of surprise was worn out. Sure enough, the Greenskins responded quickly, and determined to capture what they'd already claimed as their own, Death Skulls launched thousands of assault boats and teleporters arrays beamed boarding parties of leering flashkits across this field, um, and knobs in mega armor even had themselves catapulted through the void onto enemy <laughs> ships. Like, they literally have a catapult, and they stuffed all the knobs in it and just flung them between two ships <laughs> god i love orcs they're so good they're great <laughs> um the axe of rust which is cal grimblood's ship came under direct assault its corridors and hangers awash with murderous greenskins. um but the xenos numbers were telling for for every dozen orcs slain a space wolf fell and it was not enough um eventually Grimblood himself fell, and his ship was destroyed. Um, And his ship mistress, leader, uh, was uh, given command of the fleet in the wider battle. He declared that he would stand firm until victory was declared. The Orc fleet had to be broken completely, and the battle hung in the balance. And we don't get to know what happened, because now we get to go to Gotgard, um, which (laughs) was a fort... Yeah, moving on. Uh, Gotgard (laughs) is a fortress world guarding 20 agri-worlds known as the Acres of Plenty, securing the only safe passage through the area there. Uh, And so the Bad Moons, of course, decided, oh, we'll have that. Um, When they attacked, the Imperium responded in force, because food is really important... (laughs) Mm-hmm. Uh, literally thousands of worlds would starve if this wo- if this one world was taken by orcs and the agri worlds raised. So hundreds of Astro Militarum regiments, scores of Adeptus Orages precepts, and over twelve Space Marine chapters were all deployed. The Space Wolves, pardon me, among them. Um, and Logan Grimnar saw this not as a defensive mission, but as an opportunity to make Godgard into an anvil upon which the Hammer of the Imperium could annihilate this particular orc war. Uh, the champions of Fenris fought there for weeks, holding the outer bulwarks of a bastion there, defeating waves of orcs, and were in pretty good spirits, you know, jesting and joking as they exchanged blows. But Logan Grimnar soon received word that the Barbican of St. Hermacinda had almost fallen. Ooh. 
So he ordered the champions of Fenris to redeploy. Others could hold this bastion, but the Space Wolves were needed. Uh, and they were rapidly caught up in a completely brutal melee. Knobs in mega armor met them with power claws, shooters and buzz saws, crushing limbs, severing heads, cutting space walls clean in half. And death dreads and killer cans also made up a massive portion of the forces here, inflicting terrible damage. Uh, looters were dueling with long fangs and eliminators across the range of the battlefield. And the ground shook beneath Logan Grimnar's feet as he realized numbers alone, sheer brute force, would not win this for the Space Wolves. Not against all these engines. Not against the Orcs. The terrible, terrible foes here. They had to fight smart. As much as you love bloodlust, you love a good clean fight, sometimes you've got to lure the enemy into close confines and ambush them. Yeah. As he did with lots of the, uh, lots of looters. However, at this point, the Stompers appeared. <laughs> Hooray! <laughs> hey, um, orcs and Space Wolves both ran for cover because uh, Stompers are not particularly discriminating in where they the where they lay down their fire. Uh, and when indeed the fire began, it was so brutal that uh, a lot of Space Wolves essentially evaporated. There was literally nothing left of some of them. Uh, they were pinned down in these ruins, and uh, Logan Grimnar ordered the Space Wolves vehicles forward. Land speeders exploding, predators thundering at full throttle, uh, essentially drawing the Stompers' attention away from where all the infantry were trying to do their fighting, <laughs> because it's impossible to fight with uh, one of those things firing on your position. I'm just saying. <laughs> I I don't remember if it still has the rule, but I remember it used to have the rule where it fires with its weapon, and then you roll the dice on a two-up, you can fire again, and then you can roll again on a three-up, it can fire again, or whatever. <laughs> they just don't stop shooting, Stompers do. Um, after hours, after a completely brutal vehicle-on-vehicle and infantry-on-infantry battle, the orcs had been beaten back. Uh, it was a very bitter fight. The losses were devastating on the side of the Space Wolves, but they had managed to hold that particular area. And then they got word that the Bad Moons had breached the Glasses of Steel, demolished the Hectris Crownwork, stormed the crucial Ayush Bastion Line, and overrun the 11th Gotgard Holdfast Regiment. Uh, oh. So, yeah. So the the Space Wolves, <laughs> while they were busy off doing something else, uh, completely forgot the rest of the defenders of the planet. Whoops. And the war <laughs> rages on. <laughs> <laughs> we then head over to Brakutos, uh, wherein the Snakebite Orcs and the Space Wolves of the Red Moons and Bloodmoors Great Company uh, meet up. The Red Moons and Bloodmoors were actually on their way to Gotgard to join Logan Grimnar and the others. Uh, when they paused for resupply, on a certain planet of Brakatos, and found it completely engulfed in war. There were orcs here as well. Who'd have thunk? Yay! Uh, in particular, these were snake bites, traditionalist orcs. Why have a gun when you can have a chopper? Um, and snake bites understand what's important in war, and what's important is supplies. Uh, the planet was in danger primarily because the snake bites had fought smart for once and immediately captured the biggest hydrofactorum on the planet and cut off the planet's water supply. So, Space Wolves leapt into action, deployed, striking like a wolf pack hunting a frost mastodon, straight into the, manu- into the uh, hydrofactorum, uh, and uh, it was very dark in there. Again, snake bites don't like tech, don't like lighting, don't like electricity. Uh, they do love mushrooms. They had turned the entire thing into a massive mushroom farm. They uh, love lit- them. 
Oh, yeah. Lit only by bioluminescent squigs nailed to the walls at regular intervals. (laughs) 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 Um, The snake bites had obviously eaten everyone who was in there, or what was left of them were fragments of gnawed bone. Uh, and the orcs noticed the space walls pretty quickly due to their peculiarly used sniffer squigs, and, of course, having ferocious natural instincts. For long, the space walls were under attack. Mobs of weather-beaten orcs with uh, claws and tusks hanging around their thick necks unleashed bounding nasher squigs, which themselves could tear space marines to pieces. Uh, the Sons of Rust, obviously fighting back, eager to slay every greenskin they found while working on restoring the water supply. Uh, aggressors running around purging things with flamestorm gauntlets in these close quarters. Wonderful. Incursors following after them, getting the battlefield data to determine where they needed to actually go. They were determined to take the fight to the orc and avoid being orcs and avoid being bogged down, but their efforts are hampered by the fact that this is a hydrofactorum, most of it's flooded, and a lot of the gangways aren't in great shape after it's been turned into a mushroom farm. Uh, (laughs) Bragnar Stormfist, a Wolfguard Terminator, had an ignominious end. He fell to his death when the when the bridge he attempted to cross just collapsed under his weight. Uh, it's a it's made, <laughs> yeah. Uh, his his saga ends with may his saga honor the feats of his life, not the ignominy of his end. <laughs> shitty way to die when you fight the orcs. Um, the there were a lot of other perils, including uh, the orcs had hidden these clay pots throughout the hydrofactorum that were filled with buzzing, angry squeaks. They literally, <laughs> literally just some, listen, if you touch one of these things, the squeaks inside go nuts, they break out of the pot and chew their way through gaps in your armor and eat you. Um, oh, <laughs> yeah. Yummy. It's not a nice, not a nice place. Snake bites love to breed specialist squeaks. Um, and of course the runt herds heard, herded mobs of Gretchen into the Sons of Rust just as a delaying tactic. It takes time to crush all these little things. Uh, really slowing them down, and um, un- unusually, a lot of these orcs are way bigger than normal. Like, orcs are big, but mm-hmm. these guys were huge. Uh, and it was only when they reached the command and control center of the Hydrofactorum that they learned why. Uh, this Hydrofactorum's command center had been completely ripped apart and repurposed by pain boys and runt hordes who were mixing strange fluids, fungal extracts, and chemicals to brew some kind of disgusting concoction that the orcs were drinking, and it was making them grow faster. They were literally... They're, they're part fungus. They were fertilizing themselves and, like, aiding their own growth <laughs> with uh, this weird brew, uh, with these massively oversized orcs defending it. Um, the Space Wolves got straight into it. Massive fight, as you can imagine. Space Wolves are fierce fighters, Snake Bites are fierce fighters, and they're now amped up on essentially steroids. Um, <laughs> but one by one, the bodyguards were struck down, forcing the Pain Boys and Runt Herds to join the fray. Uh, and after several days, they finally managed to completely bring the Hydrofactorum under control and restore it to function. But it would take weeks longer uh, to restore it uh, and cleanse it properly so that, you know, the water was drinkable. But that's not Space Wolves' work. You know, <laughs> Space Wolves needed somewhere else. That The Imperial Citizen figured that out, and off they went on their merry way. Hooray! <laughs> Hooray! Good lads. Good lads, and that... <laughs> is the tale of the Saga of the Beast, this massive, I think the, the most widespread yeah, <laughs> one in terms feels of sheer it. area. Oh, yeah. For the rest of Psychic Awakening and more, 
go download part two.